Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this first in an experimental debate series produced by Transparent Media Truth. This episode was recorded on September 8, 2020. Perhaps one positive aspect of the entire COVID-19 debacle has been the reinvigoration of the age-old debate concerning the origin and spread of disease. The prevailing germ theory, which posits that disease is caused by bacterial and viral transmission, is the root theory of many modern allopathic remedies and is the foundational theory in the use of vaccines in order to provide immune system protection against these microbial invaders. Conversely, terrain theory posits that disease arises in the presence of a toxic environment and that disease is actually the body's immune system working to remove and heal the body of harmful toxins. As terrain theory has been popularized by some in the alternative media in response to the overwhelming mainstream narrative surrounding the spread of this mutated coronavirus, we at Transparent Media Truth have offered our platform to a healthy debate between the two opposing viewpoints so our listeners can have an opportunity to hear both sides and choose for themselves. It is our intention to provide an open forum for such discussion which promotes disagreement but results in unity, as it is our philosophy that we as humans can agree to disagree, while still promoting an atmosphere that respects the individual's right to make informed healthcare decisions as a central tenet of a free society. In the germ theory corner, we welcome back allopathic Dr. Richard Fleming to the program. Dr. Fleming is one of the Kennedy kids chosen at an early age to pursue a career in the sciences. During a long and distinguished career as a nuclear cardiologist, Dr. Fleming came to realize that arterial inflammation was the root cause of heart disease. He has gone on to develop a real-time testing methodology known as FMTVDM, which is capable of measuring inflammation caused by disease in near real time. This allows physicians to discover the effectiveness of treatment protocols quickly. Find out more about Dr. Fleming at www.fmtvdm.wixsite.com. Our terrain theory expert is Dr. Robert O. Young, a naturopathic doctor and the author of The PH Miracle. Dr. Young is an expert in dark field microscopy, which allows the user to view very small living particles at a very high resolution. Using this technique, he has observed the phenomenon of pleomorphism, which posits that red blood cells can transform into bacteria when needed to detox the body. This theory presents the possibility that germs come from within. His research into the importance of the pH of the interstitial fluid, or fluid surrounding the cells, forms the basis of his theory that disease presents as a result of acidic pH, rather than through invading bacteria or viruses. Discover more at www.drrobertyoung.com. Enjoy this debate between these representatives of the germ and terrain theories. I will be your host. My name is Doug McKenty. I host the weekly long-form interview program, The Shift with Doug McKenty, which can be found on Facebook and YouTube, on Twitter at McKenty, or on the web at www.theshiftnow.com. And as always, I'd like to thank producer Rob Rubin for putting this all together. Find out more about Transparent Media Truth, along with all the episodes of the Roundtable Discussions on YouTube or on the web at www.transparentmediatruth.com. Rob is on Twitter, at TransparentMED1. Stay tuned for this great debate between germ theory and terrain theory with Dr. Richard Fleming and Dr. Robert Young. 
As an addendum to this introduction, we at Transparent Media Truth would like to sincerely apologize that this debate occasionally devolved into a series of ad hominem attacks and became very contentious at times. It was our intention that we present different perspectives within the context of mutual respect and our desire that we promote unity despite differences of opinion. Unfortunately, we feel that this standard was not met. Upon some consideration, and in the interest of freedom of speech, we have decided to publish this debate in its entirety and leave it up to the listener to make their own opinion based on the information provided in real time. Thanks for your patience as we continue to learn how to provide a platform for disagreement within the context of a spirit of unity. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. Uh, this is a debate that we have produced here at Transparent Media Truth as part of our roundtable discussion series. We might This might actually be a, a completely separate debate series we've been thinking about trying to produce, and we're starting this off with... Uh, the great debate that's been raging all across the internet for the last couple of months with, with the whole COVID-19 pandemic, it's actually kind of opened up this Pandora's box of terrain theory versus uh, germ theory. Germ theory, of course, being the more popular uh, method of thinking about a disease transmission in the modern era, but it looks like terrain theory has been having a comeback, and we wanted to try to give both sides equal time so that our viewers can actually uh, have the opportunity to see both sides of the argument and make decisions for themselves uh, based on the evidence that is presented. So we've got Dr. Richard Fleming and Dr. Robert Young with us today. Dr. Richard Fleming is uh, going to present more of the allopathic uh, viral theory, and Dr. Robert Young is going to be presenting the terrain theory argument. So uh, why don't we just take a few minutes, you guys can introduce yourselves, give a little bit of your background, and then we'll get into it. Uh, Dr. Fleming, you want to get started? Um, sure. Thank you. And uh, thank you for uh, coming and being a part of this on Labor Day um, and providing this information available for people so they can make some uh, informed decisions. I am um, a physicist, nuclear cardiologist who also has a law degree. <laughs> I try not to call myself an attorney, um, <laughs> even though I am. Uh, I've done about 52 years worth of research. I've spent the vast majority of that time looking into what causes diseases, a variety of diseases, as well as what diagnostic tools are used to actually measure those disease outcomes. Um, that includes the areas of heart disease and cancer and diabetes and um, uh, fairly substantial amount of time here for the last nine months on COVID-19, utilizing the uh, FMTVDM patent that we have to measure tissue changes to actually look at changes that's occurring in COVID-19 patients and uh, to address the errors that, that are made in theories and testing and to find out what works and what doesn't work and to uh, allow us to move forward scientifically. Sounds good. And Dr. Young, what is uh, your background? Uh, my background is in, uh, in nutritional sciences um, and also in microbiology and hematology. Uh, my doctorate uh, that I did for my uh, from my biochemical uh, was on uh, nascent oxygen and chlorine dioxide. I also, that was for my master's, for my doctorate, it was on pathological blood coagulation and uh, answering the question of why does blood coagulate inside the blood vessels hmm. and what are the, the factors involved in, in pathological blood coagulation uh, from the approach of an, an environmental approach. Uh, uh, I've, I've published over uh, 70 books, over 3,000 articles, 
and uh, time moves fast, I guess, when you're having fun. So uh, it's been 40 plus years uh, from from the beginning. But uh, uh, the basis of, of my work is based on, on the etiology that the human body is alkaline in its design. The second uh, part of that hypothesis, although uh, all f- functions of the human body uh, from breathing to eating to thinking create acidic waste products uh, that can lead to, to uh, health, energy, and vitality or sickness and disease. So my approach has been environmental approach. Probably the most important thing that I've done is the study of, of, of food and how it affects the internal environment uh, and isolating those foods in relationship to their biochemistry and how they they play in in in, in affecting the delicate pH balance and biochemistry, not just the blood plasma, but also the largest organ of the human body, which is called the interstitium, and the study and and using uh, with my research associate, Dr. Galena Migalco, actually studying and quantifying the biochemistry of the interstitial fluids uh, uh, and what treatments are, are effective and what treatments aren't as it relates to looking at 100% of the body fluids rather than just looking at, at 10 or 20% of the body fluids, which is uh, currently what uh, medical science is doing. Uh, so interstitial fluid, I think, is going to be uh, a large part of understanding what's effective, what's working, what's not working, and understanding the terrain theory. And so that's what I've been doing for the last 40, 40 years. But uh, um, you know, I, I have been involved in, in clinical research. Uh, I have I have uh, patients in over 154 countries. Uh, my primary emphasis uh, prior to COVID was working with uh, with cancer uh, and uh, working at, at at several different universities in relationship to proving out the th- the terrain theory and the effects of what we eat, what we drink what we think, what we breathe, what we feel, what we believe, all impact the, the environment that affects the human cell. And so my, my approach is that COVID is, a, is an effect. Uh, I, I documented COVID effects in, in 1988, 1989, of the cellular membrane breakdown and the, and the actual corona effect of the human cell. Uh, and, uh, but I, I don't see this as a is a viral condition, but I think that's why we're having this conversation. Yeah, uh, fascinating. To actually determine, you know, is, is this a symptom uh, of something else and what are the contributing factors? So that's what I've been been studying from air pollution to, to water pollution to food pollution and the various acidic factors that contribute to, uh, to sickness and disease uh, from an environmental approach and using electron microscopy, using... Uh, bright field microscopy, using dark field microscopy, using uh, phase contrast microscopy to uh, to see the before and after effects uh, uh, on the most important organ of the human body, which is the blood. So hematology has been the emphasis of my work and, and looking at the effects of lifestyle and diet and how they impact uh, uh, what I believe is the most important organ of the human body, which is the blood. Can you define uh, interstitial fluid? Is that more? That's more than just the blood, right? That's the the, the, yeah. The, very simply, there's three main uh, main fluids of the body. There's the blood plasma, our intravascular fluids, 
what they're called. Those are those are things which are currently being measured, which make up, you know, around 10 to 20 percent of the body fluids. Uh, and this is this is the basis of most diagnostics, you know, to go in for a, a blood test, you know, to have, um, you know, white counts, red counts, you know, differentials of those of the immune system uh, and to count these these uh, and also chemistries uh, to just see if calcium is elevated or sodium is is low or high. I mean, so these are these are quantitative uh, tests that are being done currently, which only shows uh, 10% of the information that's necessary. Uh, the largest organ of the body, which is called the interstitium, uh, contains a fluid and compart it's compartmentalized, which is called the interstitial fluids. The interstitial fluids uh, are not being tested, unfortunately, but they make up 80% of, of the extracellular fluids versus blood plasma or intracellular fluids only makes up 20%. So you're missing 80% of the information to really come to, I believe, uh, you know, an understanding of uh, the effects of lifestyle and diet or the effects of, of viruses or vaccines or whatever name of culture you want to, to, to call these things, name it, the names that we use in medicine. But uh, the interstitial fluids are those fluids um, which surround every cell in the human body. So if you have 70 trillion cells, they're not swimming in air, they're swimming in body fluid. And that body fluid is called interstitial fluid. And that fluid is 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 a septic tank or a, a dumping place for the blood and also the uh, for the body cells. The body cells uh, contain a fluid called intracellular fluids. And those intracellular fluids contain various uh, entities uh, for the functionality of that cell. But any functioning cell produces a waste product and that waste product is deposited in a septic tank which is called the interstitium flu uh, fluids and of course what that what what is happening there is critical and so my last paper that i just published in july is on the interstitial fluids interstitium and and the corona effect and how these fluids are being compromised uh, but i did publish in 2015, the biochemistry of the interstitial fluids with Dr. Galena Magalco in relationship to uh, the prevention and treatment of any cancerous condition, of which we have uh, up to a 96% success rate in reversal of all cancers except for terminal cancers, which it drops down to about 83%, which is about 30 to 40% higher than most uh, uh, doctors out there that are working in this field. But the reason for this is, is I believe the genesis of disease begins in the interstitial fluid. So if you're not aware of these fluids, if you're not, if you're not analyzing these fluids, if you're not quantifying the data from these fluids, then from my perspective, you know, you're missing where the origin, the genesis of, of what's really going on in the show of, sure. uh, of the body. So interstitial fluid, very simply, is just the uh, fluids that surround the cell, but it is compartmentalized and it's very active in managing and maintaining in combination with the, uh, a, a, the brain and particularly the brain stem, uh, the astrocytes uh, that, are, that are controlling the homeostasis of or the biochemistry of all the body fluids. So that, that's kind of a, a, a long answer to interstitial fluid, but mm -hmm. 
but I can show you a picture so you can visualize this uh, later when the time's appropriate. Yeah, sounds good. Sounds I, good. Yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it's incorrect to uh, characterize all of that the way that he just did. The the presentation that somehow medicine or the scientific community is unfamiliar with the interstitium, which is called extracellular fluid in medicine and science, is to uh, is incorrect. We're very much aware of it, and we're very much aware of what does and doesn't work. It's one thing one thing to say that you've published a number of papers. I actually went to look to see what papers of yours I could find couldn't find any so I'm not sure where you're publishing them at but they're not in scientific peer-reviewed journals it's also another thing to call yourself a hematologist when you're not a hematologist or any of those things in fact you've admitted that you have no credentialed professional degrees of any sort so to present yourself as an expert with experience and training in publications is to be disingenuous and to be misleading to the people that are actually listening to this. The rife, so let's start with some of the things that you mentioned and I'll go out of sequence from what I had prepared. The rife microscope does not work. The rife microscope was presented in the mid 1800s and it's one of the premises behind terrain that you can somehow see things smaller than uh, what other individuals are able to with optic microscopes. The, the rife microscope, which has never been able to be reproduced despite more than a hundred and some odd years now of advanced science added to that is dependent upon the wavelength of light. It's a light microscope. Adding lenses or optics to that doesn't allow you to see things smaller. It simply allows you with telescopes and binoculars to see things further away. There's no data to suggest that anything you just said about pH is useful. In fact, we, you and I are both aware of, of problems that you've had by, by treating cancer patients with baking soda solutions and them ending up dead. So this, this inference that you're making that people listening are going, gosh, this guy has credentials and he's published all these papers. You don't have the credentials and you haven't published any of this work in peer-reviewed scientific journals. Don't call yourself a hematologist. Don't call yourself a physician. Don't say you have clinical patients in a hundred and some odd odd countries when that's misleading to people. If you want to defend terrain theory, defend terrain theory, but don't pretend to be something you're not. Yeah, let's give Dr. Young a chance to respond. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Fleming. I, I, I know that uh, you're not without uh, some of your uh, legal challenges, too. Oh, and I've commented on them. Yeah, and I've commented on them, too. You know, people do and say whatever they want to say. But uh, within the trial themselves, uh, within, my, within the courts, uh, there was over 360 files that were evaluated from stage one, two, and three. Out of that, uh, in the final arguments uh, that were presented, and of course, the DA evaluated all of these uh, conditions. And, and it wasn't just myself that was, uh, was charged. Uh, it was also Dr. Um, uh, ben Johnson, who is my medical director at our facility in uh, at the Rancho del Sol, he was charged with 10 counts of practicing medicine without a license, even though he was uh, a licensed medical doctor. But in these cases, uh, and as it relates to, to, to your comment about my education, 
Uh, for those who want to, to know the truth about that, they can go to drrobertyoung.com. I have listed my CV there, and you can read that. As far as the publications, my current publications are there. Uh, one of the ones that I published uh, uh, in, in Medgrave, I don't know why you can't find it, but uh, it's second, thought, second Thoughts About Viruses, Vaccines, and the HIV-AIDS Hypothesis. Uh, I did not call myself a hematologist. My education is in nutrition. My PhD is in nutrition. My doctorate of science is in biochemistry. Uh, here again, uh, these are things you can look at at the website uh, at, at your preview. As far as having, having clients in over 150 uh, countries, that is, is the case. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't need to defend that. Uh, you know, I, you know, as, as far as presenting my work internationally at, uh, at, uh, conferences, uh, as far as publications of my books, uh, one, of course, which you probably know of called the PH Miracle, uh, revised and updated in the PH Miracle has sold up to 10 million copies. These have been distributed worldwide in, in close to uh, 28, 29 different languages. Uh, but I'm not here to defend myself uh, because I'm not my degrees, you know. And as it relates to uh, of, of my legal issues, uh, you know, it is, it is true that uh, I've been arrested three times. I was arrested in 1996. I was arrested in 2001. Uh, with no convictions uh, uh, other than a misdemeanor in 1996. Uh, uh, all the charges were the same. They basically were, were evidenceless-lessness, uh, uh, but they, they dropped the charges in, 2000, uh, in 2014. Uh, there were 36 counts brought against me, uh, of which... Uh, when they went to court and pretrial, they dropped some of those down to 26 counts. And I'm, 26 I'm, counts. I'm actually less interested in you having to defend that than I am in actually having a conversation addressing terrain versus germ theory. Well, you, so you, that's you, where I sure. want you to focus. But if you want to go ahead and continue, please do. Well, but I think for the viewers, we need to be focusing on proof that you have that germ theory doesn't apply and terrain does. And I'll present the proof that germ theory does apply and terrain doesn't. And then right. the viewers can listen and make that decision for themselves. Fair enough, Dr. Fleming, but you did bring this up. And so well, that's fine. defending if he wants his to, that's credentials, fine. which is his... Well, I'll, I'll, I'm trying to make it, I'm going to try to make it qu uh, quick because 30 days after uh, we presented uh, uh, the evidence to the trustees at the University of Southern California as relates specifically to the cure of cancer, uh, their comment after after evaluating this and after many other factors which I can could go in, I'm not going to go into. They declined to make an announcement or do a publication uh, on this. Uh, working with some of the top researchers at USC, and I can name them specifically. They know who I am. They know my work. Uh, I think the more that you look at this and the body of work that I've done over 40 years speaks for itself. But the bottom line is, is that I was, I was found guilty on two counts of practicing medicine without a license. All of the charges went from 36 down to, down to 26 down to six. They went to trial with six counts. Out of that, two were fraud, four were practicing medicine. I've never been convicted of fraud. 
or been disingenuous. So your claim uh, about me uh, fabricating things as it relates to these numbers, if that was the case, then I would have been convicted of fraud. The numbers are accurate. 96% success rate in the reversal of stage one, two, and three cancers, 83% success rate in the reversal of terminal cancer using a contextual approach. Those are the facts. And it was evaluated here again. Uh, you know, if people want to look at the court, court uh, uh, records, they'll find that I was convicted in practicing medicine because I removed in an emergency situation, I removed an IV set, you know, at the request of the husband. And, uh, and, and of course, that was the only thing that I went to jail for. I spent five, five months in jail uh, and with, with, no, uh, with uh, no parole type, type conditions after my release. Uh, you know, it was a hard thing for me to go through. Mm -hmm. It was definitely a hard, hard to go through. Uh, but uh, uh, the bottom line, as far as hematology or microbiology, those are the fields which I do not have degrees, but I have been studying in. And uh, the, the, the folks that I've uh, uh, studied with, Dr. Marie Blecker, who uh, was a protege of Dr. Gunther Enderlin, uh, who promulgated a lot of Antoine Béchamp's work on the terrain theory. Mm -hmm. uh, these are the uh, these are the folks that uh, that I've studied with and worked in Essen, Germany, uh, where I spent many years uh, learning the work of Enderlin and uh, his approach to to uh, the terrain theory. Uh, but here again, I agree with you. Let's don't go into uh, those details. Let's look at the uh, uh, the contrast. There is a third theory that you may want to consider, and that's a combination theory of germ uh, effects, which are contributing factors from the outside world, and also the train theory. So there's the there's the germ theory by itself. Uh, there's the train theory by itself, and there's a, there's a third third possibility that may that we may want to to uh, discuss, and that's a combination of those particular theories, which is the right. brain germ theory. So it's integrated. Okay. I, well, before you guys continue on, I just want to make a comment because here at Transparent Media Truth, we are in favor of healthcare freedom. And so I understand that a lot of doctors that are operating outside of the purview of the, of the system that we have currently oftentimes find themselves getting in, into problems with credentials. And, uh, you know, the point that we're trying to make is that individuals uh, in a situation where they are uh, under informed consent from a physician should be allowed to make healthcare decisions for themselves. And it's a personal choice between yourself and your physician. So I just don't really want to get too deep into yeah. this. And I'd rather get get straight into the into the viral terrain. And uh, I would agree that, that the practice of medicine should be between a patient and, and, the, and the physician, not mm -hmm. other individuals. You know, you may be aware um, that the inflammation and cardiovascular disease theory that explains what's going on with COVID and heart disease and cancer was a theory that I actually originally proposed in 1994 at the American Heart Association meetings. And I've presented it several times and published it in cardiology textbooks and done research looking at the infections and how they actually promote an inflammatory response. 
And I, I find myself looking at the vast majority of medical care that's being provided to COVID-19 patients and asking myself the question, why aren't the patients being treated for the inflammation and the blood clotting that's associated with this viral infection in people? And so in, in regards to why people are actually dying from COVID-19, yes, the virus from outside the body is infecting them and causing an immune response, but that immune response is occurring in people that do not have balanced immunologic mechanisms, either because they are immune naive or because they are hyperimmune due to a variety of health problems, obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, and the list goes on. So the interaction between the actual health of the individual and what that individual does in response to an infection like a virus like COVID-19 is very critical to why the people are dying with COVID-19. And, you know, nothing about uh, allopathic medicine suggests that we are not looking at the human body as important or considering uh, the effect of something outside the body. In fact, part of the inflammation and in cardiovascular disease that explains this process is the oxidative stress, which means making the body more alkaline. And that is one of the reasons why these blood clots and inflammation are occurring in individuals. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very critical of the addressing pH and saying the body isn't alkaline enough because making it more alkaline produces oxidative damage to the body that promotes these blood clots. And that's why these hundreds of thousands of people have died. You know, allopathic medicine itself began back with the ancient Greeks when they believed in a theory called miasma, which was the explanation for the Black Death. Uh, and, and it was the idea that there was bad air that the people were breathing in. And over the course of time, that theory being recognized as not the reason for these pathogens coming into the body, it was recognized that these bacteria and these fungi and these uh, infections like viruses come from outside the body, that they're not somehow made from inside the body. And that's part of the Part of the premise of terrain theory is that there's either this pleomorphism where these things miraculously occur out of something called somatids, which aren't living organisms, they're just artifacts. And the idea of, uh, as, as Kaufman and others have pointed out, that somehow these bacteria come out of red blood cells and are formed out of red blood cells when red blood cells are the only cells in the human body that don't have genetic material or a way to reproduce anything within them. So these fantasy ideas from terrain that somehow the body is going through either, you know, Star Wars midichlorians or uh, somehow red blood cells that don't have genetic material are developing genetic material to give rise to viruses and yeasts and bacteria misleads the general public. And the consequences are people running around saying viruses don't exist or this, this is all unreal that these people aren't really dying from COVID-19. They are. They're dying from an immunologic response of a poorly controlled immune system in response to a real virus really being spread from person to person by respiratory pathways killing people. And that has to be recognized and accepted before it can be addressed because pretending that viruses come from within our body 
is 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 not addressing the real science. It it and if you can't figure out where the problem's coming from, it's very hard to deal with the real problem. Dr. Young. Well, uh, thank you, Dr. Fleming. I appreciate uh, uh, your comments. Uh, uh, there's a lot in what he said. Of course, he's talking about inflammation in a general sense, and and of course, there's always factors of measuring that. Uh, one of the things that we uh, measure uh, that, don't, that doesn't necessarily show up in the, uh, the blood, because the blood is dumping that into the interstitium, interstitial fluids, is lactic acid levels. And what we find in any inflammatory condition that two things. Number one, lactic acid levels are elevated beyond their normal range. And number two, uh, the patient is in hypercalcemia in the interstitial fluids. Now, neither of these necessarily initially show up in the blood until it just the inflammation builds up and builds up, and it starts spilling out back into the in, in, uh, intravascular fluids. But this is this is a, a very interesting uh, uh, find that we discovered uh, in that hypercalcemia in all inflammatory conditions are elevated in the interstitial fluids of the interstitium, and we measure that. As well as in any cancerous condition, the major acid that we find in an in, in, in elevated sense is, the, is lactic acid. And lactic acid, uh, based on the terrain theory, is the causative factor for cellular membrane breakdown. It's one of the acids, there's a thousand different compounds as one of the major acids for cellular breakdown, genetic mutation, and the real cause of the sickness and disease or the effects that, were, that I call the corona effect. Um, and for those who know what normal blood looks like uh, is one thing. Most people haven't really looked at their blood to actually see what this effect has, but, but it's very rare. It's very rare to see a red blood cells that are even in color, even in shape, and even in size that are swimming in their, their own uh, environment. What we find in the uh, corona effect or any cellular breakdown, particularly in cancer, is the effect of the membranes. Uh, and of course, this is where this etiology comes from uh, uh, that uh, uh, Dr. Fleming mentioned, which is pleomorphism, defined as pleo many many formism or the mutation or the generation of cellular breakdown, which yes, gives rise to uh, endotoxins, which is, which is a medical term. Those are cell fragments, which gives rise to mycotoxins or exotoxins. These are, these are caused by cellular breakdown. Uh, have I documented the biological transformation of the red blood cell? Uh, anatomically, yes. Anatomically, uh, you know, seeing, cells morph into what appears to be different bacterial forms uh, can, can be identified anatomically. I just wanted to show you uh, one picture here uh, that I took in, uh, in 1988 uh, that might be helpful as you're, as you're looking at this. You can actually see the date. This is, a, a, of course, 11... 14, 1990, which you can see the deterioration of the cell 
membrane here of the red blood cell. Now, this is, this is a condition of the cell membrane. Here again, we're looking at something like this. And in all cases of those who, uh, where we're looking at the blood, testing the biochemistry, not evasively, uh, of the vascular fluids, and then comparing that to the interstitial fluids, looking at the quality of the blood anatomically, we can see this, this type of effect. And in my presentation, I can show you uh, so people can understand and see what pathological blood coagulation looks like. But these are, these are, not, these are not normal blood cells, but they're common in, in sick people. And, uh, and, and these formations uh, I've uh, suggested begin in the crypts of the small intestine uh, where the erythroblasts or the erythrocytes are actually the beginning of the, the embryonic stem cells are formed. And then from there into the blood and then the blood into various body cells. Uh, this ability of the blood, this non-nucleated cell to be able to transform and to become other types of cells, uh, even in some of the experiments that have been done and published on blood uh, being differentiated into uh, skin cells uh, is, is, is a known fact and it has been published, not by myself, but by others. Uh, so the differentiation of blood uh, uh, is something that's being studied by many, many schools of thought in many different uh, uh, countries. Uh, but the pleomorphic activity is a normal, uh, is a normal transformation that takes place, which I am tying to the terrain theory in a declining pH. And out of that, I've seen the birth of bacteria, I've seen the birth of yeast, uh, particularly Y-form yeast like Candida. Uh, uh, but here again, these forms I'm suggesting in contrast to compare with Dr. Fleming's work uh, in, in that these are biological transformation, that the germs of the air are nothing more than animal, human, or plant matter or differentiations of that matter that have gone through their pleomorphic activity. Uh, if we go back to Antoine Béchamp and look at his work, uh, which, can be, which can be duplicated, uh, his suggestion, of course, in his statements and his work is that uh, body cells, blood cells, of course, he didn't have the knowledge of, of, of the genetic matter, but all of this are just, and Enderlin, of course, called it the somatid, so you mentioned that. Mm -hmm. There's different names for this living, indestructible matter, which Antoine referred to as the microzyma, which is a living, indestructible entity. And when you talk about that, you're talking about matter that Gaston de Sons tried to destroy. Uh, it's, it's, it's the foundational matter that becomes that which is living, uh, the genetic matter, the, the, the cell membrane, all of this matter is organized matter uh, from a foundational element, which has been described over, over the years, even Dr. Livingston Wheeler uh, in her clinic. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% certain what Dr. Reif, because you mentioned the microscope, but he was probably more on the side of, of the germ theory rather than the terrain theory. But Dr. Livingston Wheeler called it, called it the progenitor cryptoside. So it's a lot of different names from a lot of different scientists, uh, you know, uh, 
here again, it's, it's foundational. It's the only matter that's left after all body cells have been broken down. There's still that dust material, that living indestructible entity, uh, which cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. The essence of matter, which makes up, I believe, uh, all living beings, whether they be plant, animal, or human. And really, the, the only thing that makes us uniquely different is, you know, more on a, uh, on a spiritual note, whether that's part of looking at the train is, is, is the spirit that resides within us that makes us uniquely different. But we're all made of, we're all made of the same matter. That matter is indestructible matter. It's, it's a precursor to DNA, precursor to viruses, precursor to whatever name you want to call it. And it's the living indestructible matter that becomes in the proper environment can become organized. And uh, there's many philosophers that have talked about, there's many scientists that have talked about this. And I think a combination of, of looking at the effects of germs on the terrain from the outside world, because we do have what is called cocidiomycosis, which is generally found in places like San Bernardino and the deserts of, of, of Phoenix with uh, sandstorms. If you breathe in fungal forms, that can be a contributing factor that can compromise the interstitial fluid and <clears throat> the interstitial fluids of the lungs. So I, I'm I'm, I'm looking at both outside contributing factors and inside contributing factors uh, rather than looking at a one specific entity uh, such as the so-called uh, novel coronavirus that is specifically causing cell membrane down and the expression of this effect, uh, which I refer to as the corona effect, uh, which can be be seen in the aging process, the normal aging process of, of the human cell. So the idea is, is uh, here again, the cell is only as healthy as the fluids it's bathed in. That's true with the ocean fish. If you take them and put them on a, on a salt-free ocean fish, on a salt-free diet, they die. I mean, our cells are swimming in a saline solution, and that saline solution uh, as anyone knows who's been to the emergency room, the first thing that critical care hooks them up to is an IV of 0.9% sodium chlor chloride. And so salt becomes kind of like the glue that keeps us alive. And it, it makes up all of our body fluids and managing not just the pH. It's not just about the pH. This has never been just about the pH. It's just one form of measurement. You know, it's, it's measuring all the chemistries not just of the blood, uh, but also of all the body fluids so that you, you can understand both sides of that barrier, uh, that barrier that separates these two organs, the interstitium and the intravascular system. You know, the red blood cells of the human body are always defined in medicine as to whether those cells are larger than normal, smaller than normal, have more hemoglobin than normal, have less hemoglobin than normal. The morphology, the appearance, are they crenated, are they spiculed, are they sickle-celled? You know, sickle cell anemia, for example, is the result of a single genetic change in people that is passed on 
generation to generation. Now, why is it passed on? Because it has a survival benefit because when people are bitten by mosquitoes and malaria is passed to them, the malaria can't survive and infect a sickled cell like it can a normal cell. So there's a genetic shift that occurs. Changes in electrolytes and changes in fluid movement account for these different red blood cell shapes. Kidney disease, liver disease, these account for the changes in these different morphologies. But to believe that a red blood cell that has no genetic material and no mitochondria or organelles to reproduce is somehow the, the origin of something that has genetic material is to believe in magic. Genetic material from the absence of genetic material. That's theology. That's not science. And, and you have a right to your religious belief, but you can't call it a science. Red blood cells do not lead to the formation of viruses and bacteria independent of what you think you have been seeing. You know, the, uh, what, what, one of the, I do have a slide if you want to see it of this little somatid approach. Um, and I'll try to share that. There we go. Of the, uh, I think, can you see that? Mm -hmm. Okay, that supposedly out of nothing, these somatids, this origin of all life, which is again a theology, becomes a spore and then double spores and, and transforms into a bacteria. Nothing about evolutionary theory, nothing about science says that one life form gives rise to another life form, gives rise to another life form. That's like saying that giraffes will give rise to gorillas, will give rise to dogs. You know, and they go from bacteria to yeast around, and then in the end, there's left with fibers and this miraculous somatid or midichlorian, as it might as well be called, because there is no science to, to suggest that any of this exists. And they're suggesting that one life form evolves into another life form, evolves into another life form. And that is a fundamental principle of what they believe in terrain theory. This is fantasy. There's no science to prove this. Well, There's no science to support it. What he's seeing in red blood cells are well-documented health problems from liver disease and kidney disease or genetic disorders. And it has nothing to do with the cause of COVID-19. In fact, COVID-19 is caused by a virus. These are the blood clots, but caused by a virus that we have identified. This is recent. This was just taken out of the New England Journal of Medicine, where they showed that they could take bronchial epithelial cells from a human being, provide COVID-19 to it, and within four days, this virus replication would be so severe as to produce the problems and to no longer be controlled, taking you to the next stage where the immune system is now going to cause damage. This is in human beings. This is um, an example. I won't do that one for you. I'll, I'll back it up since we're doing it this way. This is what a coronavirus looks like. Mm -hmm. This has nothing to do with red blood cell. This has its own genetic material. It can't come from a red blood cell that has no genetic material. This is a virus coming from outside. Now, other individuals have looked at this 
And, and this is what you now recognize as the coronavirus, the crown, because of the spike proteins coming out. And this purple part is the actual virus and its genetic material. If we look at it with electron microscopy, this is a scanning, which means we just bounce it off until we hit the surface. And it gives you an idea of how big the virus is and what it looks like. And then this blue and purple part is what an actual human cell looks like. And then if you do a transmission, so you get a slice through it, this is what you see with a coronavirus. This is not what terrain theory proposes, either coming from red blood cells or as others propose from exosomes. These are spike proteins that allow it to attach with the genetic material inside. This has been genotyped. The genes inside it are completely different than any human gene. And that's how we know the origin of this, what it looks like and where it's been, where it's been traced from. You want okay. to say something, Doug? Well, I just want to let uh, Dr. Young um, have a chance to respond before we get, because a lot of this is getting very complicated. I want to make it relatively, we need to simplify it for the audience and try to make it linear so that people can follow what we're talking about. So uh, Dr. Young, could you speak to the uh, somatid theory first? And then we can talk more about the corona virus in particular. But um, well, why don't the, you... the summative theory was postulated by uh, Gaston Nessans. Uh, uh, Enderlin, uh, who was uh, the professor of my uh, uh, professor, Dr. Marie Blecker, at the Enderlin Institute, uh, their theory is somewhat different. Everybody has their their theoretical you know, diagram of what may be calling, calling this. I think the, the general consensus is, is, is that there's a beginning and ending to all organized matter. And uh, the reason why many of them sa have said this, including myself, is that the human body cell, it's not just the blood, but the human body cell is in of, it, of itself is made up of these living indestructible anatomical elements. And then when the blood and the body cells, the bones and the muscles are all gone, what is left is this protein, the microzyma, these are just different names, the progenitor cryptoside is the only other living matter that is left. Having taken the remains uh, that were donated to me in our, in our lab, uh, from Egypt, uh, the, the dust material of an ancient king, uh, having to reconstruct that and put it into a, a, an environment that was conducive to something that it was in before, uh, we can call it the Browning effect, or we can call it the, the resurrection of these living anatomical elements as they become active. No different than when you take a seed in its dormant state and plant it in an environment that's conducive for sprouting, will it grow? Seeds do not grow on concrete. They don't grow on asphalt. They grow in, in living soil, mineral rich soil, that then it can, when water is added, uh, can sprout and become a living plant. Uh, Mohammed said, don't you understand that when uh, a, a, where there's a fertilization by a sperm to an egg, that one drop is formed. And the question that he proposed, don't you understand that you were created out of one drop of blood? And I know this is theoretical. I know this is 
more from a, a religious perspective. I'm just saying that this is what someone who did not own a microscope uh, that they had. So I, I don't necessarily refer to the somatid or the somatid mm -hmm. cycle that's being presented by Dr. Fleming. This is not something, something that I've ne necessarily embraced. I can only speak about my experience and what I've identified. So uh, if I could take, have him take his down and I can just show you a couple of pictures in sure. contrast to what he's suggesting uh, here. Because these have actually been observed under the microscope. I mean, this somatid cycle is the way Naissance describes it, but this was something he observed uh, using. Yes, and I, and, I, and I don't have any reason to disbelieve Mm -hmm. uh, what he observed and the conclusions he came. I did not study under, uh, under Gaston Laissons. I knew him. We spoke uh, just as I spoke to Luc Montier, who was exiled from, from the University of Paris for, for discounting the fact that he never, including Peter Duisberg of the University of California at Berkeley, he never isolated any virus, nor did he isolate the HIV virus and show using Koch's postulates that it was infectious. And so he, he backed off that and started studying the antioxidants. He lost his position at the University of mm -hmm. Paris. We were in Milan, Italy, uh, where we did a joint, uh, we were keynote speakers there. And I asked him where he, where he was now, and he was at Chinua University. He's now back at uh, the, uh, the University of, of Paris. But and this, He's now studying the effects of the environment and antioxidants in relationship. And, and Peter Duisberg, who wrote the book Inventing the AIDS Virus, which incorporates also other viruses of, uh, that, that have never been uh, isolated using the scientific gold standard. And so just to, just to uh, inform the audience, Luc Montagnier, Dr. Montagnier, got the Nobel Prize for theoretically isolating the AIDS virus, but has now changed his point of view on this well he had to change his point of view that's what people do they change their point of view for lots of different reasons and i'm not mm -hmm. judging i'm just telling you my experience and my conversations with him personally uh in milan italy and and what he told me now what he's talking about now the, the case is, is 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 still there when we look when we look at the uh you know, these cells and their ability to change or to organize or disorganize, this is a natural phenomenon. And, uh, you know, that I'm going to get to here. So here what we have, because you brought this up, we talk about exosomes. And then we look at uh, using an electron microscope. This is uh, five, uh, uh, the scale here is 500 nano. Uh, nano meters, and, I don't, uh, and, and then of course the COVID-19, uh, when we're looking at this, this effect, uh, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Dr. James Hildreth, who's proposed that the virus is fully an exosome in, ev in every sense of the word. Uh, and then when we look at the exosome in comparison with COVID, uh, we're looking at the diameter inside, which is uh, 500 nm and the diameter outside, which is 100 nanometers, uh, they both contain the ACE uh, receptor 2s. They contain RNA, and these fluids are found uh, in, in the bronchialveola. And what is, this, what is this exosome, just to define that for the listeners? 
uh, as far as an exosome is uh, something that's that's released uh, from inside the body. It's released as as a uh, and there are some studies on this as a I, I would suggest a repair protein, but as a trigger to activate the endothelial cells to begin uh, pathological blood coagulation due to uh, a compromised uh, internal environment. But exosomes are born out of the cell. They're a product of the cell itself, the body cell, and COVID and, and, uh, and, and exosomes have uh, uh, defined here in, in, my, in my analysis are, are identical in nature. Exosomes are Is the this? release of material from a human cell in a vesicle, a fluid-filled package that is then released from the cell to go to other cells and communicate with other cells to let them know what the original cell is seeing or responding to. But the picture that suggested that the one thing was a COVID-19 virus doesn't show it as a, it's not a COVID-19 virus. Exosomes have a certain genetic material that yeah, see that's not a coronavirus. Um, no, no, this is this okay. is the one. The, so if you look at the genetic material released out of exosomes, and you look at the genetic material of COVID nineteen, they are not the same because COVID nineteen has non-human genetic material, and exosomes have human genetic material. So one of the ways you distinguish the difference between a round, smooth outer surface exosome going from one cell to another and a virus that has spike proteins on it designed to attach to a human cell that has ACE2 receptors is to look at the genetic material. And in fact, when everybody talks about Cook's postulates not being fulfilled for COVID-19, they literally have been. The original Chinese presented the genetic material of COVID-19 back in January of this year, where they took multiple patients that had the symptoms of COVID and had COVID within their bronchoalveolar lavage and nasal passages. They took that material out of all of them. They genotyped them to see what the sequence was, which does not match human genetics. So they matched infection with organism. They have then taken that same material and injected it into monkeys and reproduced COVID disease. And in fact, as you saw with that one slide I just presented, they have now presented it into human cells and reproduced COVID-19 from the virus. So Cook's postulates of identifying a disease and an agent, then extracting that agent out, then inserting it into something that's healthy and being able to take it and produce the disease and being able to take it back out and identify it have actually all now been done for COVID-19. So the premise that somehow COVID has not met Cook's postulates has been completely blown out of the water. And the premise that exosomes that contain human genetic material is the same genetic material found in COVID-19 has been blown out of the water. And the last effort to try to say, gosh, it's the same thing, was the chromosome eight fallacy that came out 
where people claimed, oh my goodness, look, the reverse primer being used for COVID-19 is the same thing as chromosome eight, except it's exactly that, a reverse primer, which means that if you read it the way it's supposed to be read genetically, it is exactly the opposite of chromosome eight. So the concept, the premise that somehow COVID-19 is coming out of human genetic material, be it a radically changed red blood cell that suddenly has genetic material or midichlorians coming from nowhere suddenly making life or exosomes suddenly having new genetic material different than human genetic material have all been blown out of the water. Well, let's Can let... Let's let Dr. Young respond, especially to uh, this idea. If is there foreign genetic material, Dr. Young? Are you you're saying that uh, the well, if you're if you're putting yeah, if you're isolating if you're isolating some protein particulate and you're injecting it into another animal and then you're taking it from that animal and injecting, sure, there's going to be a, an immune response. No, it's not an isolated protein. It's it's genetic material. It's RNA. Okay, so so if you take a if you take a uh, Will you stop fragment. sharing your screen? Excuse me. Just stop sharing your screen if you're not going to use. Yeah. It. If, you, if you're if you're taking a um, a fragment, a cellular fragment, and injecting that, and we know the vaccines contain uh, genetic matter, RNA or DNA, and they come from different sources. Of course, there's going to be an immune response. An immune response. Uh, the innate immune response is going to look at that as a foreign matter. Any no different than if you're getting a. Uh, a, tr a kidney transplant or a liver liver trans. There's going to be a rejection. There's going to be an activation of you an know, immune that's, response. That's actually an ideal point to make because if the genetic code of COVID-19 was of human origin, there would be no immune response to something that's human origin because it wouldn't be foreign. Well, I, I appreciate your, your your emphasis on that, Dr. Fleming, but that actually proves my point and why there's organ donation. You take a, a human it's liver- It's a different human. Oh, I see. It's only conveniently different. No, the point is, is that you're claiming that it comes out from the person who has COVID-19, and if it's in an exosome of a human being, it's their genetic material. It could not initiate an immune response. What initiates does, well, does well, response it, is something- Well, no, the exosome- the exosome does initiate immune response. It activates the pathological blood clotting factors. The release of exosomes from the cell is a signal to activate the, the various factors, factor 13, factor 7, to begin that clotting process, which then ends up in all, all of the COVID cases, of which I think we agree. I think we can agree on this, that, uh, that COVID patients are symptomatically in pathological blood coagulation. So when we look at this, uh, if I can share this again, uh, when we look at uh, this condition, and I'm not talking just of biological transformation of, uh, of red blood cells, I'm talking about biological transformation of even body cells. So it's any, any cell is contained of a foundational element which you have quoted, of course, Gaston de Saint's somatid cycle. I'm suggesting Antoine Béchamp, the origin of this, this theory is uh, the microzymian theory. And when we look at then this uh, pathology, 
Will you explain why the cell would release the exosome initially? This is because of a toxic environmental situation. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, it's, it's due to uh, the environment, the pH, the biochemistry of the interstitial fluid is, 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 is not balanced, uh, is, is not in an alkaline state. It's declining from 7.365 down to 7.3, down to 7.2. Of course, 7.1. That's, that's anti-life. Yeah, well, seven point seven point one. They're in. They're in. Uh, they're in a coma. Yeah. So it, it doesn't take much. No, they're dead. Shortly, no, no. you know, you leave seven point three five. I've taken care of enough patients. Where you're, you're confusing. We're I'm sorry, Doctor Fleming. You're confusing blood pH with interstitial fluid pH, of which you know very little about. I, I assume because you no, don't I'm an allopath. We actually are trained in extracellular fluid. Right. So tell me, tell me, tell me what the, the pH of the interstitial fluids compared. Show me Do your you science. Do you have any research papers that show what the extracellular fluid is pH wise? Have you published no. or done any work in that? Yes, I have. Okay. I would let love just, to see let those me just papers. Go ahead please. and let show you this them. erythrocytic fiber net indication and disseminated intravascular coagulation. This is what's happening in COVID patients. They're pathological. This is what's leading to pulmonary embolism. This is what's causing the symptoms of a dry cough. It's causing the fever. It's, it's causing the symptomologies. What Dr. Fleming is talking about are symptomologies. You know, kidney disease does not give rise to what's happening in the, in the terrain. The terrain gives rise to the kidney disease. It is the inability of the liver to filtrate out metabolic acids. We all know one of those being alcohol is a major contributor to pancreatic and liver cancer. We're not calling out a virus, but in that particular environment, you see these types of formations. And, and as, far as, as far as sickle cell being genetic, it's only genetic in relationship to what one's eating, what one's drinking, what one's thinking. Genetics does not control the destiny of the human being. It's about epigenetics, Dr. Fleming, and epigenetics is all about the terrain. It's all about the environment. Genetics determine what happens within cells, how well they function, whether you have blue eyes, whether you have a disorder that will lead to a cancer or, or, or heart disease or predispose you to, to diabetes or whether you will develop a sickle cell. Now, granted, it is a now, there's, combination. There's magic. Uh, that's, that's that's not magic. That's yeah, science. That is the genetic no, not science. of human it's, beings. It's, that's it's, what makes uh, us different. Let's keep it cool, guys. Keep it cool. That's what makes us different from chimpanzees and fruit flies and the giraffe down the street. Is that and 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 from COVID nineteen, it is a different genetics that defines what you are. Yeah. Okay. To well, a certain extent, but defining no, our destiny. Our destiny and whether someone ends up with kidney disease or diabetes is a hallucination. This is not, genetics does not determine anything. The environment determines the outcome of how the genetic is going to be expressed. It's all about the environment. And that's why when I, when I show this very simple graphic, which uh, here again, most people, it's, it's a very simple graphic uh, about terrain, uh, here again, it's, it, the fish is only as healthy as the water it swims in. The body cell, whatever the body cell is, the kidney cell, the liver cell, the brain cell, is only as healthy. If you're not releasing the waste products of, of metabolism from the interstitial fluid, 
this will then lead to the symptoms of which medical science likes to conveniently call disease. But there are no diseases. Diseases are nothing more than symptomologies of an overacidic condition due to an overacidic lifestyle and diet based upon what you eat, what you drink, what you breathe, what you feel, what you believe. All of these are contributing factors. In the biology of belief, you know, we know that beliefs do affect the outcomes. Even the placebo effect is based upon uh, the biology of belief. You but, know, it's interesting that the, that the environment is such a tremendous factor. And I have published papers that talk about the importance of the interaction of what comes into the body, the environment, with the human genome that varies the response within individual to individual. But if environment were so powerful, then the uptick in COVID-19 cases, particularly in Los Angeles at the beginning of this pandemic, should have been down because the air was actually cleaner in Los Angeles during the early part of COVID-19 than anywhere else in the world, but our cases were going up. Now that people are driving again and polluting more of the environment, the caseload is actually going down. And that poses a problem for this simplistic approach of it's all about the environment and somehow that is the magical culprit. In science, we are very careful to rein back from imposing religious beliefs or theologies on people because the perspective is, is independent of your religious belief, science works. It's not biased based upon your religious beliefs. What I hear too much from the terrain theory is always there's a belief religious component that adds to it. And scientists are not anti-theology. We just believe that if we're presenting science to people and they expect us to present science to them, they expect us to leave theology to the theologians and the science to the scientists. And then we let them take from the two groups and put it together what works for them. That's that's part of, you know, the doctor-patient relationship. When I present the science, the medical science to a patient, and I tell them what the outcomes should be, what the numbers are, what I believe is the right thing to do, they have then the right to say, well, it goes against my religious beliefs. And I honor that. You know, when I was an intern, I had a Jehovah's Witness as one of my patients, and he was bleeding, and uncontrolled bleeding. And I was beside myself because we couldn't find the source of his gastrointestinal bleed, but he was dying because he was losing blood. And I sought out his family members to, to get an answer. And what I discovered, unknown to me, was that they believe as a family that they could donate within their own family because they were, as they put it, pure. I was ecstatic because that allowed me to find a source of blood for this patient that was acceptable within their religious beliefs and the science. Well, but Dr. Fleming, the placebo effect is scientifically verified. I mean, the we know that... The placebo effect is the expectation that people have that something may work, and that's why you and need... And it does help it work. It, 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 it can 
quite possibly have some effect, but mm -hmm. it doesn't just resolve the disease. Placebo effect means it may help some people, but it doesn't solve the disease. If you're going to go out and tell all these COVID people that I want you to think positive thoughts and nothing within you is going to be destroyed and the COVID is coming from your exosome, so you shouldn't develop an immune response and you get them to firmly believe that, you can't honestly believe that there, that all those people that died must have been people who just didn't believe strong enough or didn't have the right placebo effect because the placebo effect in a COVID-19 patient equals a dead patient. Well, I mean, we don't have the statistics on that. <laughs> we have hundreds you know. of thousands of dead people. And we haven't done a study on, on how the placebo effect may have affected. Yeah, the we have lots of people that haven't gone and gotten any treatment. And I'm guessing somewhere along the way, there must have been placebo effect. But you're right. Nobody asked them just before they died, did you believe that somehow miraculously this would resolve because it had to come from your exosomes? I, I'm, not, I'm not saying one way or the other. I'm just saying there are scientific studies that have been done that would say that the placebo effect has an impact. You know, 20 yeah, that's why, that's why that Dr. Anthony do Fauci right now is insisting, and, and this is one thing he's doing that is correct. He's insisting that the studies for COVID must be done prospectively, looking ahead. They must compare different treatments. And, and you can compare people that aren't receiving treatments. You can compare the different types of treatments. And then you measure outcomes. You know, Mr. Young talks about the fact that we're not looking at the interstitium. FMTBDM is a patented method which I developed because of my criticism in not looking at the tissue level. And FMTBDM asks exactly what's going on at the tissue level. What is the metabolic function? and what is the regional blood flow. Dr. Young, could you take off your result. screen sharing? Excuse me. Well, I just wanted to share that uh, since we're talking about germ theory, terrain theory, I don't think a lot of your listeners really, and I put together a, a, a slide that, uh, uh, you know, I've definitely uh, like your, your input uh, as well as Dr. Fleming's input, but, uh, you know, simply, you know, for, for the listener, you know, the germ theory, diseases arise from germs outside the body. This is why they call it infection. Uh, the terrain theory, disease arises from germs within the cells of the body. So rather than an infection, an outfection. Mm -hmm. The disease is coming from the inside out. A combination of this, of this which I think a, a lot of this is going on. So it's not like I disagree with, with everything that Dr. Fleming's talking about. That's not the case. And I... I think he would share some of the same views, but disease arises from germs sometimes within and sometimes without the cells of the human body. And uh, uh, the germ theory where microbes are generally to be uh, guarded against uh, uh, and how that's done is, is below uh, providing some sort of therapeutic or some sort of vaccination. Uh, the uh, intracellular or the interstitial fluid of the microorganisms normally functions to build and assist in the metabolic processes of the bodies. Uh, in the germ terrain duality theory, microorganisms are generally to be guarded against, but not at the expense of the terrain. So looking at the terrain and seeing how, let's say, a, a vaccine affects that terrain uh, in, a, in a negative or positive way, uh, whether it throws someone into alkalosis or acidosis, or if it lowers, you know, uh, some of the chemistry factors that are being tested there. 
Um, the shapes and colors of microorganisms are constant. Microorganisms change their shapes. This is where uh, Dr. Fleming brought up the pleomorphic idea that the cells have the ability to change their form, shape, and also function. Um, in the germ terrain or duality theory, every disease is associated with a particular microorganism and the con conditions, set of conditions. Uh, going down, microorganisms are the primary causative agents. In this case, we spent time talking a little bit about HIV, but most of it's been on COVID-19, which, which, uh, which I would uh, refer to the placebo effect. Uh, the virus is, is mass hysteria, uh, which is a major contributing factor to a lot of the symptomologies that are, that are coming on. Uh, uh, the virus... Uh, uh, would uh, here again, uh, or the 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 disease would be a loss of common sense, and and uh, the treatment would be to uh, would be education and, and knowledge and teaching people how to maintain the alkaline design of the body. That's coming from me specifically. Uh, here again, to prevent disease, we 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 have to build defenses. We have to build immunity. We have to put a little put a little bit of of uh, the antigen into the body in order to create, you know, a, uh, an acquired uh, immune uh, defense against uh, this particular uh, entity. Uh, the terrain theory would be to prevent disease, we have to create health uh, because a lot of what's being done is rather than study healthy people, which is the basis of where I came out of, out of amateur and professional sport, we were trying to figure out ways to improve our performances, we were trying to stay healthy. What are those things that gave us sustainable energy uh, uh, versus you know, how do we uh, uh, treat disease by studying sick people? So I've learned a lot by, by studying healthy people and, and having been a, a, an athlete myself on a professional amateur and professional level, that's very important. I think it was very important at the time when I was participating, but very important to athletes. Uh, uh, the, uh, growth, uh, the germ theory denies the existence of a living indestructible anatomical element, which is a precursor to all living things, such as our genetic matter, uh, Antoine, can, can I, microzyma. The can terrain I clarify theory, one thing? Yes. Uh, I just, so in terms of this, these, uh, this somatid theory, is this where then from the somatids grows this genetic material that Dr. Fleming would argue is coming from outside the body? This was uh, Gaston Nassan's uh, mm -hmm. naming what he was looking at, uh, which is probably similar to what Antoine Bechamp was referring to as the microzyma. So the somatid would be from Gaston. I, I hate to speak for somebody else, but sure. from my perception and what I've read of Gaston Nassan's is that uh, the somatid is the primary intelligent, indestructible matter and the precursor to all genetic matter. Mm -hmm. uh, this was the position of Antoine Bechamp. This is also my position. Whatever name you want to call it, other scientists have called it different things. I mentioned Dr. Livingston Wheeler, uh, who called it the progenitor cryptoside. This is matter that you, you can try to freeze it, burn it, cut it, destroy it. It's indestructible. It's it's after someone's been cremated, it's that dust, intelligent matter that's all left. There's no organization of any body cells. There's no blood. 
There's no, there's no liver or kidney cells. All there is are the components that made up those living entities at one time. Uh, so but, it's, but my so question is, is this where what appears to Dr. Fleming from your theoretical point of view, is this the origin of the genetic material that is being called a virus that, that appears to be from outside the body or doesn't appear to, to come from inside the body? Like where does the genetic material within the coronavirus come from in your uh, view? This would be, this would be microzymian organization. This would be the construct of those anatomical elements that make up the sperm or make up the egg that then create, it's, it's, not the, it's not the genome, it's not the DNA or the RNA, it's what makes up that RNA or DNA. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, there are information. It's like little tiny nanoparticles uh, that contain intelligent information that's coming from, uh, you know, from progenitors, your, your parents, your, your great grandparents, your great, great grandparents. It's, 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 you know, these are where the, my blue eyes came from, you know, my blue eyes are, are from that intelligence, which is encrypted on the microzyma, which is then part of the construct of the sperm or the egg that then combines those anatomical elements together that then gives birth to one drop of blood. And out of that one drop of blood, all other body cells are formed. So the origin of all body cells, uh, which I'm suggesting theoretically, you know, theoretically is that the red blood cell is the primary stem cell and the precursor to all other body cells. And yes, that's a debate in of itself, but it's, it's organization is critical. And so the focus anatomically on the blood, on the environment, which is very important, you know, and when that environment is compromised, this is when we see changes within the membranes of cells, not only in the blood, but also in the interstitium. So when we change that, and we provide the foundational elements that build healthy blood, which is the nature of my work. This is when you see healthy blood. This is when you start seeing the regression of symptomologies that are being expressed as symptomologies. So kidney disease in of itself is not a disease. It's a symptom of the body's environment and the condition of the blood. And this can be shown within pathological blood coagulation, it can be shown in the way the blood coagulates, looking at dried blood drops. Uh, for example, the clotting factors of blood. When we're looking at uh, blood coagulation, uh, the black lines are actually proteins called fiber monomers. These are the conditions that show up within the blood. So when we're looking at someone in a dried blood that has polymerized proteins that have molecular weight that are settling to the center of this 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 blood smear, uh, and then you look at the symptomologies or if you're diagnosed, pre-diagnosed, or if you're diagnosed with a condition of Crohn's disease or inflammatory IBS, inflammatory bowel disease, they match perfectly to what's showing in a smear or a dried blood uh, drop in the way that the blood patterns. So these Hopefully things- Hopefully the placebo effect will help them. Well, the placebo effect is, is relates more to the, to the the to the treatment. All I'm saying is is when you see the the kinds of reversals, not by just giving and simplifying my work to giving sodium bicarbonate 
the treatments which were administered by licensed nurses and medical doctors, uh, these treatments contain other biochemical factors that are necessary, including all the electrolytes, and sometimes may include other factors that are, that are necessary when we're looking at the extracellular fluids in its entirety, which would be the vascular fluids and the interstitial fluids, which makes up the entire. We're, we're looking at close to 400 different elements. We're not looking at just pH. We're looking at over close to 400 different parameters within these fluids and looking at them specifically in relationship to the symptoms yeah. of disease. And you know, the, the, the backpedaling out of that is 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 fine, yeah. but but the premise I think that as Doug had, had asked the question was the origin of these viruses perceived right. by terrain theory, and you stated it goes back to this somatid process or whatever other name you want to give to it. Can can you take has, down the screen sharing? Excuse me, that, I just don't think yeah. our viewers can actually see us talk when that's that, up. So it's going to get has yeah. no you. genetic material. And out of nowhere, it suddenly has genetic material, which is right up there with midichlorians and Star Wars. And while I, you know, my children are great fans of Star Wars, I don't use it as a basis of the science for the investigation of people's problems like COVID-19. Well, I can, I can respect uh, your experience and I can respect your position. You know, I, I can uh, politely uh, disagree with, with, uh, uh, with your conclusion starting at symptomologies rather than starting at uh, terrain, which I believe is foundational and really showing the effects when you correct the terrain, just like in the, in the, the diagram that I showed, when you, when you change the water, air pollution, when air pollution cleans up, you know, when we're not, when we're not looking at uh, nitrogen dioxide and, and arsenic and, and carbon dioxide poisoning from, uh, from cars and factories. Uh, these when, are, the, when the air pollution cleaned up here in L.A., COVID got worse. Well, but it's, now it's, not, that, well, now no, it's not just it about got, the air pollution, though, Dr. Yeah. Fleming, right? And, and well, let's just ask you this, uh, Dr. Example. Fleming. Well, right. Well, it got, I, Doug, it got, some people it, get it, it and got, other people don't. Why yeah, do some not, people are healthier and they don't get it? Why are they? Okay, so okay, or they're asymptomatic, right? Are right. they asymptomatic because the terrain is well? Is no, no, there, or there, their body there is are healthier? there are there are several components that do that do play a role. To begin with, there's always something called viral load. How much of it do they get exposed to? Um, there is the matter of how functional is their immune system? Are they bringing it into control? What that one picture showed from the New England Journal of Medicine, I think, was very key and very telling because it showed that four days of an uncontrolled response of this virus resulted in a sufficient viral load of this virus to go on and cause an immune response producing these blood clots and inflammation. And so there are multiple variables that, that do play a role in individuals. If you want to somehow say that the health of the human body is now suddenly terrain, well, I would argue that that's called medicine. Whether it was back in Aristotle's time or Socrates' time or today or 100 years ago, that's still the health of the individual. 
And nowhere have I suggested that it wasn't important to watch what's going into your body. In fact, much of my work has been what are the things that go on that produce this inflammatory process that the body then needs to respond to. But it is always an imbalance of something coming into the body producing harm. And I wasn't taught to respond to symptoms. I was, symptoms are what the patient tells the physician. This is what I'm experiencing. The doctor is trained in medicine will take the symptoms that what you're telling me and say, okay, what do I know about what causes these types of symptoms? You know, a headache, a headache, what's that due to? Is it dehydration? Is it meningitis? Did you get hit by a Mack truck? You have to say it's not the symptoms. The symptoms are telling you what the problem, what to look for for a problem, and then you go look at it. But you can't pretend that the problem is coming from the genetic material of the person now producing a virus causing an inflammatory and blood clotting reaction. That's saying that the body is attacking itself by producing exosomes to release COVID-19 to cause blood clotting, which kills the person. There's nothing terrain or natural about that. That's a suicide pact. This is... Okay, let's have Dr. Young actually address that. Why does the body get sick then? I mean, if if it's not something coming from the outside or, I mean, you know, I guess the terrain is toxic. Well, I mean, let's no, the, like, let's describe environmental toxins. I mean, we see the effect of the, the forest in Denali on acid rain. I mean, there's, it's evident that, that it, it, it destroys life. We're seeing the destruction and, and the breakdown of the coral reefs you know, off the coast of Australia on the gold coast. And it, as the pH of the, of the oceans being compromised because we're compromising by contributing acidic waste toxins into the ocean from the air, the air absorbing carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide. I mean, the body has to maintain, when I say the body, the ocean body, when we're talking about acid rain, uh, not from the outside, we can see its effect. On the inside, we're looking at the effects of what happens. So acid rain, whether it's coming from the outside, would be environmental acids, or environmental toxins. We also have metabolic toxins. Metabolic toxins are waste products that if not properly eliminated through the four channels of elimination, which would be urination, defecation, perspiration, and respiration, they are then held within the interstitial fluids, then pushed out to the connective tissue, of which was one of the reasons why people get fat. They're not overweight, they're over acid. So the body has to deal with over acidity from metabolic acids that are not being properly eliminated. So we have environmental acids from the outside world. Uh, We have metabolic acid from the inside world. We have respiratory acid, uh, which is coming from the waste products uh, from, from, you know, respiration. Mm -hmm. And then we have dietary acids. Dietary, those are the four contributing factors that give rise to the one sickness and one disease. The one sickness and one disease is the overacidification of the blood, then the interstitial fluids due to an inverted way of living, eating, thinking, breathing, feeling, you know, mm-hmm. you know, these are these are these are the uh, the causes of these buildups which come in and, and it's the body's inability to remove its own waste products. I talked to to a patient today uh, who was diagnosed with Crohn's disease, and I asked one simple question: how many times do you eliminate the bowel? And the answer was daily. I said, yes, daily. 
and this child is, is, is six years old. And I said, yeah, how many times do you eliminate the bowel? He says, well, maybe once a day, but it could be every other day or third day. That's, that's, called, that's called severe toxic, toxicosis if you're not eliminating your own waste products. So yes, does this, does, does, does this patient have blood in, in, in the, the feces? Absolutely. You know, the condition of Crohn's is nothing more than cellular breakdown in the expression of a yeast outfection that's given rise to a compromised environment of the bowel, which had, should have a pH, particularly the small bowel, at an 8.4 pH. When we correct that, the Crohn's goes away. The bleeding stops. You can try to treat this with drugs, uh, you know, uh, or you can, you can, you can use a, a holistic approach, a natural approach to do it as well. All I'm saying is, is symptoms of diseases or diseases are symptoms of either metabolic, dietary, respiratory, or uh, metabolic waste that is not being properly eliminated through the four channels of elimination. What is, pro what is the problem with wearing the mask? Have you, have you looked under the microscope? I mean, wearing a mask is like wearing a chain link fence uh, around your face so you don't uh, uptake uh, gnats or mosquitoes. The bottom line is you could drive a mat truck through that. I mean, to wear a mask to prevent if there is something airborne out there, you know, is, is, is not going to provide by a cloth mask or a surgical mask. And I have, yeah. you know, so these, these problems you're getting, you, you just can't, I, I can't limit it to, to outside contributing factors. So yes, air pollution is a contributing factor, electromagnetic frequencies, pulsating frequencies, uh, which I believe and have did a research study with Beverly, uh, uh, trying to remember her last name, but anyway, uh, she was a, a professor at the uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, she and I published a paper in 2001, uh, the biological effects of electromagnetic frequencies on the human, uh, human uh, biofields. And that was based upon uh, electromagnetic frequencies as a distributing factor uh, at approximately 900 megahertz up to 1.5 or 1.6 uh, gigahertz. But, but now we're looking at uh, electrical fields and magnetic fields that really long-term studies have never been done mm -hmm. as it relates to what the harm that's going to be done there. So as it relates to affecting the environment of which, here again, the reason we put food in the refrigerator is to, is to maintain the integrity of that food so it doesn't deteriorate. The body has a system. And, and why does it deteriorate? The, the cells, what, what grows the on cells it? deteriorate because it's not conducive within the environment it has. It slows it, down that process. Bacteria grow on, on those foods, and then we adjust those and take those into our body. That's why we refrigerate this stuff. Other foods that, doesn't have, that, that don't have the capacity for the bacteria or, or fungi or other things to grow on them, you can leave out on the counter and not have the problem. The point is that the foods that we refrigerate, it, it has nothing to do with the integrity of the cells of what we're putting in there. Well, it's, it has to do with the infectious agents If you drop an apple... And infect people. Yeah, infection is, is an interesting term. I'm not, I'm not denying the fact that there can't be infection. It is a contributing factor, but it is not the sole contributing factor. Outfections are real. We put our food in refrigerators, but there is what is called freezer burn. Germs of food are cellular breakdown products, and bacteria is a product of that cellular breakdown. Mold just doesn't appear on food because it's been 
magically attacked by some outside contributing factors. That have mold, mold, mold is a factor of cellular breakdown. Cells that have genetic material do not change well, that genetic material out of the blue to become something else any more than a giraffe suddenly becomes Within that a particular species, change does take place based upon no, the terrain. No and genetic, genetic mutation is a known fact. And we also know that epigenetics does control that destiny of what's being expressed or not being expressed. And, and the fragments uh, that are theoretically called viruses or uh, the RNA fragments that are being studied are biological breakdown products from, that are caused by the environment affecting the cells, both on the membrane and also the They're genetic not. matter that is that's, now breaking that, down. That's nonsense because then that genetic material in the viruses would match the genetic material of the stuff you claim it's coming from, and they don't match. Yeah. COVID-19 well, has been genotyped. It has nothing to do with the human chromosome or some other organism. That was part of what they had to do originally, and the Chinese have done it. The Koreans have done it. The Italians have done it. The Americans have done it. Everybody has genotyped. That's how we know how this virus got spread around the world. That's how we know that in Los Angeles, the COVID-19 virus that is present in Los Angeles didn't come from Wuhan, China. It came from Italy after the virus had been brought to Italy from China, and it mutated enough to show a genetic shift so that it, it had a different genome slightly enough to be recognized as coming from Italy. We didn't get it from the people who came from Wuhan, China. We got it from the people who went to Italy. That's science. That's not fantasy. It, you don't get to, you know, and you never answered the question. If a virus causes the body to attack itself and form an inflammation and blood clotting phenomenon, and that only happens if it comes from outside the body, First off, you didn't explain that disconnect, but why would a human being produce something excreted in an exosome to cause the body to attack itself? That is a, well, that, that very is a suicide. Very simply, very simply, Dr. Fleming, to stop internal bleeding. Cells are breaking down. We're in an alarming situation due to a compromised environment. That's if you would test the that. environment around the cells, you would have your answer. But of course, you haven't done that. Oh, so well, I'm you, the guy who actually wrote the theory. Yeah, you haven't done it. You haven't no, done I wrote it. the haven't theory, buddy, the and I've done the work part. on it. How you do you think not. I you came up with the theory? You haven't quantified this. You're just talking generally. Well, I have quantified guys, it. Uh, you, you guys actually agree more than you disagree here. So let's like understand there's a lot of common ground. We know that the, the body yeah, uh, causes in, inflammation yeah. and... Uh, and that this inflammation causes the blood clotting. The only thing is, what is the source of the of the initial inflammation? So, so Doug, uh, you, you did ask a question as it relates to, and, and inflammation is, is what I would refer to as stage four acidosis. There's various stages of developmental uh, so-called symptomologies. The first stage is, is enervation. That's where the body's fatigued. I mean, we see that in COVID, mm -hmm. uh, loss of energy. The second stage is irritation or sensitivity, third stage is irritation, fourth stage is inflammation, fifth stage is induration, where we're getting now uh, the body reacting to an excess creation of waste that it's now creating uh, compartments or uh, stones. And so this is the, the birth of blood stones, to, to brain stones, to breast stones, to all the stones. The sixth stage is ulceration and the seventh stage of uh, uh, systemic acidosis 
is, uh, is degeneration. These are the stages of the one sickness and one disease, uh, which can be identified by focusing on the environment and looking at disease as a symptom or effect of an environment which is being compromised. And the treatment is simply change the environment, restore the alkaline design of the fluids, mm. open up the channels of elimination, you know, to remove waste products. And in doing so, you see the res uh, these symptoms residing. Now, when Dr. Fleming talks about increasing cases, you know, increasing cases of what? I mean, we're using Molin's antibody testing, okay, to determine. It doesn't have a COVID sign on it. The well, bottom line is, is that we have more cases. I'll agree with that. Well, how does, so we how does that happen in your view, Dr. Young? Like, how does this something with similar symptoms is spreading around? You know, how, why is that? Well, <laughs> here again, if, your if, if, if you're testing for increase in antibodies, and if we have contributing factors that are, that are not necessarily related exclusively to a sole virus, but there's other contributing factors, so there's electrical magnetic factors, there's air pollution factors, there's food factors, mm. there's environmental factors, yes. And yes, do I recommend you know people coughing on each other? Absolutely not. The exchange of fluids, particularly if someone is symptomatic, but when we're looking at fatalities, we're looking at, at a number that is totally insignificant, that is, that is less in, in, in its count than, than uh, you know, the, the influenza. Uh, but I mean, here again, uh, uh, the CDC, you know, had to go back and at least make a comment as it relates to 94% of all so-called fatalities, which are amounting to about 170,000 people in the United States, right. that approximately 6% of them were theoretically isolated COVID. So we're talking no, about- No, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. You've got to be stopped on this because this is one of these major, major misrepresentations being made right now and it's confusing people. The fact that there were 94 to 95% of the people who had comorbidities that placed them at increased risk for having an inflammatory response, they died because they had those comorbidities and because they were infected with COVID-19. It does great disservice to the people who've died and to the family members of those people who have died to suggest that this is just all some type of fantasy and, and unrelated to COVID-19. They died well, because they got an infection and because of their comorbidities that geared up their immune system, that response produced an increased inflammatory response and they died and would not have died simply without the infection occurring to tip off the inflammatory response. Right, but, so that but is, is a misrepresentation but, of what the CDC just said. Sure, but this is correct, right, Dr. Fleming, that typically in the past, I mean, in the H1N1 pandemic, if someone died of heart disease and they had H1N1, it would be called heart disease on the, on the death certificate. Um, but, you know, I don't so know how- So they changed the no. criteria for counting the deaths. And now they, the co so the COVID deaths appear, not, I'm not saying COVID has nothing to do with why a person right. with morbidity would perish. I'm right. just saying that if they counted it the same way they counted the H1N1 pandemic or any of the past pandemics since I think 2003, they wouldn't be counting these comorbidities. They, they just, that I, wasn't the system that was in I, use. I understand what you're saying. COVID. I understand what you're saying with mm -hmm. that. And I disagree with calling somebody a COVID death when they can't 
came in with a motorcycle accident and a head injury and they had COVID. Clearly they died from the motorcycle accident. We're now finding, because they're going back and looking at this with the influenza patients, that 11% to 12% of the most recent influenza patients actually had heart damage from the inflammation and blood clotting precipitated by the influenza that was the final straw that caused them to die. So they're dying with both and it has to be recognized that the that the infection with covid or the infection with influenza is in fact making worse these other diseases that are not fantasy and they're not related sure. to the ph they are literally being triggered to become worse and and the evidence that i'm and you know i'm pushing this out there of saying you can't look at these covid patients as merely having a viral infection yes if they're pre hospital and they're symptomatic, and you want to try treatments to stop the replication and infection of the virus, that should be your focus. But once they get to the stage that they have to be hospitalized, you have to recognize that we have to be treating this inflammatory response and paying particular attention to these other comorbidities because they are a setup because of their immune system. And again, had this come from within the human body, it would not be recognized as foreign, and there would be no immunologic response to be killing these hundreds of thousands of people. This is a disuse of the CDC statement, and it, it, I'm tired of it, and it needs to stop. This is misinformation, and, and that is harming people. Well, I, I don't think Dr. Young yeah. is going to disagree with you about the notion that the inflammation is what's ultimately taken people out, and that the, the co- people with comorbidities are more likely to perish once that inflammation sets in because their their system's already inflamed. I mean, you agree with that, Dr. Young, correct? Yeah, inflama- inflammation is definitely a contributing factor and mm-hmm. a symptom of uh, the biochemistry's out, off, and, and specifically in the interstitium. And uh, that can be corrected uh, using, using therapeutics and also uh, using uh, an alkalizing approach. And, and, and this is uh, not treating not treating any specific disease, but looking at the terrain as, as foundational to the health of the cell membrane and to, uh, and it's stopping the deterioration and to the uh, genetic mutations or the damage to the, uh, to the, to the genes uh, needs to be stopped front. This is why cells release, this is why immune system release, releases these these powerful nascent oxygen uh, compounds, such as uh, uh, the hydroxyl radical, to neutralize these these waste products, such as the cell membrane releasing glutathione and uh, the depletion of glutathione within the system. Uh, these these are things which are natural. Uh, the fact that the body is is manufacturing from the lining of the stomach sodium bicarbonate, which is a natural occurrence. If you look at the biochemistry. Of, of, of stomach, of the stomach lining that produces hydrochloric acid, it creates an equal amount of sodium bicarbonate. So as the body needs more sodium bicarbonate, which is its number one buffer, if it can't get enough of that, then the body uses its second buffer, which is hemoglobin. This is why we see uh, codocytes within the red blood cells, which are targeted red blood cells, and the loss of hemoglobin, hemoglobin is being dropped because there's not enough production by the stomach as the major alkaline buffer and really at the foundation of immunity to maintain the integrity of the interstitial, of the vascular interstitial fluids 
by creating sodium bicarbonate by simply using water, salt, and carbon dioxide to produce uh, sodium bicarbonate and a waste product of that production, which is called hydrochloric acid, uh, which is uh, uh, kind of like the smoke from the fire. But as the body gets what it needs, you know, this then ceases to, ex to, to happen, the deterioration of the membrane, the genetic mutations, the thrombosis uh, that's taking place, place or the, or the, uh, the, the thrombocytes uh, that, that are, are aggregating, causing clots. This is reversible and is a symptom. Thro thrombocytic or, or pulmonary thrombosis, these are symptoms of the body trying to preserve its integrity by releasing the clotting factors to prevent internal bleeding or for that patient bleeding out. You know, so that's why we're seeing in, in, in a majority, if not all, of COVID uh, patients who have passed. And now we're talking about fatalities, which I would suggest, I don't know the exact number, but I would suggest are significantly less than what is being reported by the CDC. And that's what is disingenuous, is representing incidences and fatalities by combining other symptomologies. Uh, can, can, can COVID or this, I would say not COVID, but can this, this uh, response to, to a compromised environment create uh, the release of clotting factors? Yes. I agree mm -hmm. that, that these things are happening. People yeah, are actually uh, alkalization of, of the blood, uh, oxidation will cause these clotting factors versus acidification, as you're suggesting. Well, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Dr. Fleming, if you measure all your patients, and this is what I'd recommend you do, well, actually, what I was going to recommend is that you do a study to show that uh, addressing this pH issue would somehow be beneficial to these COVID patients, because our research and a lot of other people's research well, I would, isn't I would be showing happy anything to, there. But I think you should go ahead and start this research if if it's if you firmly believe that this is the thing that is killing people, you have a moral and ethical obligation to get I to agree. the bottom of it. I agree, and 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 I'm happy to coordinate that with anyone, including. No, yourself. you should do it. You can coordinate. It's well, no, I did this with cancer, and I'm going to do it. No, with you COVID. haven't done it with cancer. Okay. There's no published okay. papers that okay. show that you've done anything. That, 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 is, that is not correct. And so, well, uh, again, I'd like to see them. Okay, well, I'd that's be happy fine. To read uh, it. Go, to, go to Dr. Robert Young. Dr. No, uh, you, you uh, can, all right, Dr. Fleming. You can that's send fine. Me the papers. Do you, do you the, bottom, the bottom line is, is I, you know, I'm talking about contributing causative factors that are coming from the outside world and the inside world that's leading to pathological blood coagulation, which is leading to hypoxia, you know, and hyper or hypercapnemia, that these are symptoms of the body's inability to remove its own metabolic, dietary, respiratory, and environmental waste. It these is people the result are, of panels of elimination are not community. open. They're not removing their waste out through the pores of the skin. They're either not exercising. Uh, you know, or they're they're not taking, they're not moving out through urination. And a very simple test, you can do it yourself. Test your COVID patients, anyone that's been diagnosed with uh, with with COVID. Test the urine pH. You're going to find it's six or below. Ideally, the pH of the urine should be 7.8 to 8.4. And when we're looking at pH of the urine, urine is a specific fluid from the interstitial fluid. It's not from the blood. It's from the interstitial fluids. So when you're testing, very simply, with a $10 investment, you can actually buy your own test kit and determine 
whether you're, you're in metabolic acidosis or alkalosis, mm -hmm. but the bottom line here is all the ones that we have studied that are diagnosed with these symptomologies are in decomp metabolic decompensated acidosis. And that is a fact in every single diagnosis that I've had the opportunity to test. This thing right here in panel C, this is why they can't get oxygen in and carbon dioxide out. This is fluid in the alveoli of the lungs resulting from the inflammation, resulting from the infection of COVID-19, infecting the lungs, producing an inflammatory thrombotic response. This is not a pH issue. This is the fluid building up in the lungs and, and making it impossible for the oxygen outside to get across the fluid. It's like breathing underwater. Unless you've got I, a stupid take on it, it's extremely impossible. Sure. I agree. Sure. I, I agree with the symptomology. Uh, Not symptomology. This is the histophysiology. No, this is the, the symptomology. If you, would test the interstitial fluids of the, if you would under, uh, test the interstitial fluids of the biochemistry and test the pH, you would find that, that all COVID patients are in decompensated acidosis of the interstitial fluids of the interstitium of the you lung. Haven't measured this, COVID this, patients is, to see if this is coming from the blood. It is not coming from the lung. The blood is not properly circulating. They're in pathological blood coagulation or DIC, disseminated intravascular coagulation. And this is why these people have to be ventilated. And the, the focal point is not in the alveolar. It's in, it's in the blood. The solution is in the blood. And these people are in pathological blood coagulation because they have a, an acidic lifestyle. They have an acidic diet. They are receiving acidic treatments. They're re they, they have, uh, they're, you know, they're, they're drinking acidic water. And we didn't need we, a virus for all these people to die, did we? They should just all be absolutely dying already. Not, you know, viruses are just symptoms or repair proteins of cellular breakdown that are, that are created from within. And, and, and so, yeah, I mean, Dr. Dr. Fleming, I just want you to address, though, I mean, you, you do agree that if people aren't eliminating waste and they're building up toxins, that's not good. That's likely to result in some pathology, correct? I mean, this is the, the a, a crazy anti-scientific idea. No, the elimination, <laughs> the inability to eliminate the carbon dioxide as a result of the fluid buildup in the lungs acute respiratory distress syndrome in these patients is making it impossible for them to eliminate the acid and get in the oxygen. But that is, is the beginning of a process, again, from a virus that has caused this inflammatory reaction. I, I, can re, I can respect what you're That's saying. That's why they put him on extracorporeal I just, I just, uh, membrane oxygenation to address What, what he needs to do is he's got, he's, it's like peeling, peeling an onion. He's got halfway there, but he hasn't gone the full way. This, well, does, not, this does not start in the alveolar. But it I would start in the blood. Right. And if sure. You go, if you the go to the infection doesn't begin fluid, in the blood. If you go to the blood and the interstitial fluid, what you'll find is pathological blood coagulation. This, this is not it. an intravenous drug user. This and is a respiratory find, virus that begins find in, in the lungs and the GI tract. You'll find in every case that you're talking about metabolic decompensated acidosis. And this is what's causing the problems in the lung. If you must you, be you, reading different research than I am. We are doing different research. I yeah. No, I'm, I'm reading what other people are publishing, and they're not showing that. This is, well, of course, because they're not studying. They're not. Of course, the because they're fluid. not agreeing with you. They're, uh, not, they're not disagreeing. They just don't know. I'm sorry, Dr. Fleming. The, the, the argument in know. reality is that terrain theory doesn't have enough validity to be considered a part of the process. We're looking at a virus that comes from outside the body, 
that causes an inflammatory response, and that's what we're treating. We're not treating something that starts inside the body. But clearly, Dr. Fleming, you also agree that the end result of the inflammation is this blood clotting situation. So, I mean, Dr. Young has a different theory as to why the blood is starting to clot, but this is this is something that you've observed, and every you know everyone has observed that this clotting issue caused by yes, but it has nothing where the infection goes. Has nothing to do with pH. Okay, well that's a general. And and, and I've laid it general, out. You know, let general, me. Uh, I'll pop a, up the theory there, and and you can you can look at the theory that actually was published in a critical care cardiology textbook back in 1999 after I first presented at American Heart in '94 and '95. So I'll let, I'll let you do that, and then I'll screen share the, the, uh, the actual explanation of why this happens. Okay. I mean, we're looking at about five, ten minutes, so uh, we need no, to think about no, how we want to wrap order, this order up. For, in order for blood to get into the al alveoli, they need to go in single file. This is impossible. Yeah, that's capillary. In this capillary yeah. and other capillaries, it's not it's not. Yeah, that's in. how it's done. It's, it's just not getting in. It has nothing so, to do with pH. <laughs> Well, I, I disagree with you. So I, I, I agree to disagree with you, but uh, right. uh, I think if you start, start testing the interstitial fluids, you start looking at decompensated acidosis of, of your COVID patients, you'll see the cause of, of the vascular problems because the blood can't get in to remove its carbon dioxide. You can't pick up oxygen. And so it's not getting into the lung. And so the people are dying from what, what, what are the symptoms of high altitude sickness? Fever, you know. Uh, this, yeah, this heat. isn't high altitude sickness. That's a different type of process that occurs. The symptoms are very similar to high altitude sickness. Any, anything that produces acute respiratory distress syndrome has the same symptoms. That's why I said with, in with the dry cough, not to focus on symptoms, but why those symptoms occurred. In high altitude sickness, you have to treat that for high altitude sickness in COVID-19, you have to treat COVID-19. Here's a picture, I think, is this uh, up on the screen, Doug? Uh, no. Okay. No, okay, um, okay, let's share, there we go, sorry about that. Okay, again, Here guys, is, like five minutes. Um, yep, you got it now? This is what it looks like if you actually measure what's going on in the tissue, and you can see that the increased metabolic activity and vascularity of this right lung shows COVID pneumonia, none in the left lung, that's the heart. Um, you can measure tissue changes actually occurring pre and post treatment. So you can measure, you wanna talk about looking at interstitium, we're talking about looking at the entire area, which includes the interstitium, to actually measure the regional blood flow, which is critical when you're dealing with thrombosis and oxygenation, and the metabolic function, not only of the, of the immune system coming in to deal with the infection, but of the virus infecting cells, gearing up the machinery of those cells to make more virus. And as far as the theory that explains this, this is the actual accepted theory. This is the inflammation and blood vascular disease theory that explains the effect of blood clotting and complement cascade and infectious agents and oxidative stresses and a variety of other factors that come in that is responsible for this inflammation and blood clotting. That is the currently accepted theory, and it's the theory that I actually published. 
And what, so what is your feeling about the pH? I mean, pH is important, right? Or do you think it just doesn't matter if someone's pH? No, the is body's getting... pH has to be maintained. The, the arterial blood gas, because that is the one that we have the, and it reflects. You can't have this, the area around the blood having a pH of 7.1 and not possibly be reflected in the, in the blood right next to it. So the blood reflects what's going on. There is a blood vessel, a capillary, within every three to four cells of the human body. So you can't have something happening interstitially or extracellularly, depending upon which one of the terms you want to use, and not have it reflected in the blood pH. So the blood pH goes from 7.35 to 7.45. That's in the alkaline range because anything greater than 7 is alkaline. Our bodies are designed to address acid results, insults, no matter where they come from, whether that be diet or the environment or anything else going on. And we do that by blowing off the extra acid, the CO2, and urinating out the extra acid, the ammonia or the urea. You throw a little bit of extra alkaline or blue into somebody and you have a dead patient because I've seen it, which is why when President Trump said, well, let's just give them a little bit of bleach. And every and you could see everybody in the room cringe, especially Dr. Burks, because her thought was, I'm well, certain, oh, my God, you didn't just actually say that because you're going to have people go out there trying to do this little alkalinization of their body and you're going to end up with dead people. When you take extra base in the body, your body just basically either has to dump it out or if the pH goes up too much, you are a dead human and covid is your last concern at that point. In can time. you can you take off the screen yep. sharing, please? And then we'll I'm let Dr. Young respond right to that. On. And then we'll have to wrap it up, I think. Although, I, I, yeah, go ahead and respond, Dr. Young. And then. Well, I, I mean, I, I think for both of us, I think uh, we're saying so many things. It's hard to it's hard yeah. to, to answer every single aspect. One of the words that that uh, that is being thrown around here uh, you know, in, in, in both of our research and both of our experience and, and what we're looking at is, is the word inflammation. I, I've suggested whether it's accepted by you or anyone else accepted. I, my, my experience is, is that you cannot have inflammation without oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is just another word for acid. I just use the word acid to, to, to classify a group of of metabolic, environmental, respiratory, uh, dietary waste. I mean, it could be, you know, uh, you know, from from meat. Uh, we all know that gout is caused by uric acid. Uh, we all know the, and experience the effects of when the interstitial fluids pushes off lactic acid from overexercise. It's called inflammation. It's called pain. And whether whether you want to attach a, a viral entity to it, whether it's real or unreal. Uh, what I think we can agree on is, yes, inflammation is involved. Oxidative stress is involved. That oxidative stress, oxidation means the lack of oxygen. It's related to waste product or acid that's not being properly eliminated. So you can focus on the oxidation. And, and, and I do not recommend bleach, by the way. Uh, I, uh, sodium bicarbonate is a natural compound that's produced by the stomach every second of the day to maintain and manage the blood pH and the interstitial fluid pH. But it's only one factor. It's a major factor, but it's only, and I've not said that the pH, the ideal pH of the blood or the interstitial fluids 
which actually blood pushes its waste products using hydrostatic pressure. It doesn't go back into the blood unless, it, unless it's just overflowing. It's just kind of, kind of like a sink that can't drain itself. And so things start showing up in the sink rather than going through the drain. And this would be the same example of interstitial fluid pushing off its waste product because it's overflowing in waste back into the, into the vascular system, which is, which is not early enough. If you want to get to the problem earlier, you have to test the interstitial fluids, compare that to the vascular fluids, because the interstitial fluid is not going to push back its waste product into the vascular. It, it, it can only do that when the hydrostatic pressure exceeds that of the blood and pushes it back into the blood. And that only happens when the person isn't going to the bathroom. In other words, you have to pee your way to health. You've got to literally remove your waste product, whether it's metabolic, environmental, whatever the contributing factors, whether it's from air pollution, you know, whatever the pollution, if you've got cellular breakdown, if you've got genetic mutation, the immune system's going to activate because apparently the pH is off, the stomach's not doing its job, uh, in managing the delicate pH balance of, of the body by producing enough sodium bicarbonate. So it has to pull out the big guns, the lymphocytes, to release you know, these antioxidants or against oxidation or fermentation. And this is where you get uh, the release of, of these, these compounds or chemicals, OH minus, SO minus, H2O2, to manage and maintain. And, and, and no one wants that. I mean, that's an alarming situation, but it's evident in these COVID cases, do I do I treat high white count, or do I change the environment? My approach and what I found from my experience, which is different than Dr. Fleming, and I can respect his opinion. I can respect his experience. That's his experience. That's what he does. You know, this is my experience, and and what I do is I open up the channels of elimination. Why? Because people are not removing their waste fast enough, it's building up, it's, mm -hmm. it's being pushed back into the vascular system and, and the body has to do something. So what does it do? It calls up other entities like exosomes to begin the clotting factors and the result of that, because when cells are breaking down and the endothelium, which is the protective membrane of the vascular system of, of the body starts breaking down and exposing the basement membrane, it automatically begins to, you know, because you're in a, in a dire situation. And so this is why the body begins to clot. And this is why we're seeing, and, and I believe, you know, those studies that have been shown or autopsies, which have been shown, are showing DIC or showing pathological blood coagulation. If the blood can't get to the lungs, then it must start in the blood. But if the blood is not, is, is not flowing, is not circulating, then why? That's all the question I, uh, I would propose to you. Why is the blood in premature blood coagulation? That was the nature. And I'm happy to provide Dr. Fleming my dissertation that I wrote, you know, on pathological blood coagulation. And he can agree or disagree with it. Mm -hmm. But here again, you can read it and come to your own conclusion. You know, my idea of, of this discussion was to learn from Dr. Fleming, you know, and, and, and I, I'm not generally a contentious person. I'm just trying to get my point or at least allow people to understand my point whether they agree with it or not. This is my experience. These are the things I can relate to. You know, I haven't just fallen off the back of a truck. I've been doing this for 40 years successfully, you know, uh, and I continue to do it because my passion and belief 
is in the results. If I wasn't getting results, you know, why would I do this? I'm not a rich man. I don't do this for money. Most of the money, you know, th th that I have is just for my substance, you know, to, to continue my work. So, yes, prior to a lot of the legal challenges, I had money. But I was giving a, a, a million of that away to help people that didn't have money to get help. And regardless of, of what they wanted to do, they wanted to do a germ theory approach, a terrain approach, or a duality approach. You know, because I can't change Dr. Fleming's beliefs. He believes what he believes, you know. And people, you know, you know want to experience the effects of an alkalizing approach, then great. Read my book, The PH Miracle, revise and updated book, the 210. It's an oversimplification of the theory, okay? But that's okay, that's okay because, you know, it needs to be understood at that particular level. And, uh, you know, I, I've tried to communicate this information the best that I can in the publications that would receive my publications. And I want to publish, and, and I, I, I agree with Dr. Fleming, more research needs to be done on this, particularly when we're talking about where I'm making a claim or based upon the evidence of other researchers that these people, severe acute respiratory disorders, then the precursor to that in the autopsy is showing pathological blood coagulation. The question I propose to any researcher, what is causing the pathological blood coagulation that's preceding the blood going to the alveoli. So if it's preceding that, then it must be something else. I'm suggesting that the something else are about 20 different contributing factors <clears throat> uh, that, that create that. And the two major ones are chemical, nano particulate uh, uh, poisoning, chemical poisoning uh, from the air we breathe, electromagnetic poisoning, and uh, this whole new science of, of nanocolloidal uh, science and these particulates, which cannot be filtered out by any mask. You need to wear protective equipment to protect yourself from something that's 100 nanometers uh, or less. But the bottom line is, is, is how can we help people? And, and I truly, from my heart, from my heart, want to do no harm. And I, I sense that for Dr. Fleming. I mean, he's passionate what he believes in. And guess what? I'm just as passionate. But don't confuse that with the fact that I have any negative feelings about him. I want him to succeed in what he's doing. Mm -hmm. And I hope he does. You know, and I hope I will continue to be able to have this opportunity to, to, to do my work. You know, free from, you know, the politics of what's going on with all this. And there's... I, I don't know if you would agree with this, but I think there's too much politics in this COVID thing. And, uh, but, but definitely yeah. I don't want to incite people. I want to educate people and I want to give people, you know, a different perspective. And if I was just, if you were to ask me the question, well, are you a germ theorist or a trained theorist? I would say neither. I'm more inclined to say that what we're dealing here is a duality theory that includes the germ theory and includes the, terrain theory, and that we need not just to put all of our attention on the germ as the major contributing factor, but, and I don't think Dr. Fleming's done that. I think, I think uh, just knowing the little I know about him, 
that that he realizes there's other contributing factors that lead to severe acute respiratory disorders. Uh, and air pollution is a major one. Uh, uh, electromagnetic is a very controversial subject to talk about, but I believe based on, about the name, her name is Beverly Rubick. I'm sorry, I, I didn't pronounce that. Uh, mm -hmm. I didn't have her name, but Beverly Rubick and I did a study over in London on the, the negative effects of electromagnetic frequencies on the human, uh, on the human uh, 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 terrain. So this was published in, in 2001 in the International Journal of Alternative and Complementary Medicine. Uh, and so uh, you'll see my work and my blood work in there that is now dating. We did the actual research in 1999, uh, but dates uh, now uh, over 20 years. Uh, so I've been looking at this for a long, long time. And, and uh, guess what? You know, uh, you know I, I'm, I'm grateful we were having this discussion. You know, and I'm I'm grateful that that we we do have opinions and we can we can talk about them, you know. And 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 if I've been disrespectful in any way, I apologize personally to Dr. Fleming because that's not who I am. So uh, I, I I respect anyone who's trying to make a difference, and I believe that's the case with with uh, Dr. Fleming, and I think it's the case with you, Doug, is to get this information. So I congratulate you on uh, making the effort to bring these two sites together. And I hope that you'll continue to do that and that we can have uh, additional uh, conversations about this as we knew, learn more about each other's experience in the area of, of research that we're currently doing. Right, yeah, I mean, very interesting conversation that we've had today for sure. Um, difficult because I think fundamentally you're coming from different places, although there's a, a lot of common ground as well. So I'm learning how to be able to present this information to the audience in a way that we can uh, make it um, understandable and allow people to make their own decisions. I, I think, uh, like you were talking about, especially with COVID, but healthcare in general has been way over politicized. Um, I think all of us here agree that healthcare freedom is a, a really important reform that needs to be made. Um, so that people can get all of the information through debates like this one and decide which route they want to take and, uh, and then have a private relationship with their doctor where they can make personal choices uh, with informed consent. So, uh, Dr. Yeah. Fleming, do you, have, do you have some words in conclusion? Sure. And thank you, both of you, for appearing today. I think this is important to try and get the information out, uh, especially on Labor Day. Uh, people are taking off their, their uh, it's not so much a holiday as it used to be. We used to have these days off, and they were different than the rest. Now they just kind of merge into the rest. Right. Um, I, you know, I think that COVID-19 is a classic example of something that has been over-politicized. Um, you can't miss it any given day of the week as you watch people kind of side up based upon who their political approval is dependent upon. Mm -hmm. And that is a disservice to the people and a disservice to medicine because our obligation is to take care of the patients, not the politicians, not the courts, not anybody else. It's, it's to take care of the patient. Um, to try to answer, uh, to just kind of go through and maybe I can answer some of the blood clotting questions. You know, COVID-19 is a unique virus. It is uh, genetically similar, but also different from SARS-1 and from MERS, which was the Mediterranean version. There's evidence that the genome of this virus has been genetically altered 
both with the insertion of HIV replicase components and with rabies components near the furin uh, site on the S protein. That makes this virus particularly infective and much easier to transmit from person to person. The consequence of a viral infection, and I would say a bacterial infection or anything else, is that our immune system responds to it as an outside entity that shouldn't be in the body and shouldn't be harming the body, shouldn't be using the cells of the body to make more of itself. And in doing that, it launches a two-phase approach. The first that we've heard about somewhat in the media are called T-cells. The T-cell cytotoxic response, which is the initial response that occurs in about three to five days. Part of the response of that is to try to attack and put holes in the cells that are infected with the virus to try to destroy the virus. And the process of the chemicals being released punch holes in everything else, including blood vessels and the other tissue around where the virus is. Those holes cause the blood clotting to be initiated. And then over the course of several more days at about seven to 10 days, the second phase, the humoral antibody response occurs. And in doing that, the antibodies are released and most people I think realize that the antibodies are designed to attack the antigens or in this case, the virus. But on the opposite end of the antibodies, apart away from the virus is a, is a complement cascade end that attaches to the complement cascade and also causes blood clotting and, and further damage to occur in an effort to try to wall off the blood supply to where the virus is so that it can't get the nutrients it needs to reproduce itself. Um, it is unfortunate that the vast majority of people in the world have such a poor diet and lifestyle practice that they are predisposed to these hyperinflammatory states. And this virus has really driven home the point of the consequence of this happening to people. Because as the CDC numbers show, there are a lot of people, five to 6% is not a little number when you can think about hundreds of thousands of people. But with the comorbidities, it's become even more devastating to people. And our focus needs to be on trying to get information out to how people can reduce the risks of these comorbidities, of being aware to seek out medical attention and advice when they become symptomatic. I don't think that it's useful to be PCR testing everybody like they're at a McDonald's drive-through simply so we have numbers of how many people have been exposed. It's a respiratory virus. It's going to expose lots of people. Um, the question is how many actually have a problem and how do we treat those individuals? And we're slowly but surely coming to grips with this now that we have to de this, deal with this inflammation and blood clotting if we're going to save these lives. The virus is clearly from outside the body. There's, there's no doubt about it. It's easily spread and it has dangers, but it doesn't mean that as a society, we now have to go into hiding. I've never been a big proponent for the masks. Um, I've never been a big proponent for the vaccines. I think that the vaccines are a bad idea because the vaccines will introduce part of the virus into people 
and that will cause the same response as naturally getting at will, which will be an immune thrombotic response in individuals with these comorbidities. It allows you to have a three to four day running time when you get exposed to the virus for real. It doesn't prevent you from getting the virus for real. And that three to four days is the same amount of time it will take people to mount that initial acute T-cell cytotoxic response. So from my perspective, the use of a vaccine for this virus doesn't buy time and it potentially predisposes people to having bad outcomes that they shouldn't have otherwise. So from that perspective, hopefully there's some agreement in that approach. I appreciate both of you being here on Labor Day to share this information for people. I hope it helps people answer some of the questions that they have, and I hope it helps everybody move forward with these types of conversations. I think debates are important, whether they're scientific debates or political debates. Uh, I hope that the exchange of ideas between those running for office right now will be as healthy and as vibrant. Um, I hope that people understand that uh, in presenting a debate, it's not disrespectful to disagree with your opponent or to present things that may sound like very strong points. They are necessary to get the points out, and it's for the people listening to make a decision about what they believe then as a result of that. Holding back on things doesn't provide information to the people listening. It simply hides it. Sure. And, and just maybe really quickly, Dr. Young, what are your thoughts on the vaccine? since that seems to be the next big question we all have to ask. Well, I, I think, uh, th thank you, uh, Dr. Fleming, for sharing your, your uh, final words here. Uh, there's so many things in what you said I agree with, you know, so there's, there's not much that I, that I don't uh, disagree with. I mean, as far as oxidative stress, as far as inflammation markers increasing, as far as blood coagulation and the, and the, the damage, uh, the fact that it's coming, what it is coming from the outside in, whether it's a chemical versus uh, versus let's say introduction into the vascular system with uh, with vaccines, I mean I, I mean I couldn't more agree that the vaccines isn't a solution to the pollution uh, of, of what's happening inside the blood fluid body fluids. Uh, the solution to the pollution or uh, has to be things that we're talking about today. Whatever those things are. You know, I, I've suggested several things. Open up the channels of elimination, uh, hyperperfuse the, the interstitial fluids with alkalinity. Test Simply start testing the pH of your urine. Find out where those are, uh, uh, you know, and, and try to bring them up with, as you mentioned, uh, one of the major contributing factors is most people have a poor diet. And poor, I would decide, would, would describe as a, as a highly acidic diet. And uh, I think it's already been recommended by others that uh, the proteins and animal protein, the uric acid, the nitric acid, the oxalic, the acids within uh, the sulfuric and the phosphoric acids do not help the situation when you're already in a so-called outfectious, infectious condition, whatever your perspective is. Uh, that's only going to contribute. So yes, eating animal protein, eating dairy products uh, is not going to help resolve the solution. Yes, you have to eat to live, uh, but hopefully you don't live to eat. Uh, you have to kind of change that around and, and start eating foods uh, that are going to build blood, that are more like your blood, like uh, high chlorophyll content foods, uh, 
that, uh, he, uh, that molecularly structured are identical to your own hemoglobin. Uh, these are things that I've uh, that I that I, that I share with people uh, in the, in the book. So uh, I'm glad to hear your position on inflammation, oxidative stress. Uh, I know we different on the exosome thing, uh, but here again, that's somatics. I think when it comes to what our outcome is, and that's to get the person circulating so they can percolating percolate. But before they can circulate, they've got to start eliminating. So elimination becomes a very very important aspect to my overall protocol. So I'd like to uh, uh, thank Doug for the opportunity to uh, share uh, my, my experience, my work, and, and uh, I'm glad to hear uh, about, about yours and uh, just uh, keep up the good work, uh, all of you, and, and uh, hopefully we'll rejoin this and the next time we meet, we'll, we'll have even more experience and more understanding and more knowledge that we, we can help people with their overall lifestyle. One last thing, I do agree with the mask. Uh, the social distancing is, I don't think you mentioned, but uh, I think as far as the, uh, the infect, uh, infective nature of this particular virus, I think that's another matter for debate. Uh, but here again, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. So, uh, you know, as far as oxygen deprivation and wearing a mask, the fact that the material that's being used will not stop viruses, which are measuring lower, 100 nanometers or less, lower than what the spaces are, the holes within the mask. And I'm speaking both surgical and also cloth masks do not protect you from, from any so-called infectious condition that could enter that mask, whether it's carbon monoxide or black carbon or uh, 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 nitrogen dioxide or or uh, hydrogen arsenic or, or carbon monoxide, whatever the poison is, uh, you know, why would we, and I agree with you, Dr. Flaming, why would we then inoculate additional poisons when we already have, in a symptomatic person, we already have an activated immune system. We have the innate immune system because there's actually two immunities going on here. It's trying to restore uh, homeostasis. We'll just say homeostasis. Uh, to, to, to agree to this, uh, not to disagree, but homeostasis, whatever it is, biochemically, to restore homeostasis to the fluids of the body, of which uh, I'm, I'm measuring very many aspects of that. So I encourage people, don't just believe us, you know, do your own, do your own research, mm -hmm. you know, start, start educating. It's education, not medication. It's education, not vaccination. We need to ex educate ourselves and empower ourselves to be able to take care of ourselves. And yes, you know, you have doctors out there, good doctors. Dr. Fleming is one of those that can help you and, and direct you because he's dealing with one of the symptomologies. He's saying the causative aspects of that, which is inflammation, which is, is a causative factor. It's actually a symptom, I believe. And, and so this is good. If you can reduce inflammation, you're going to reduce the symptomology. It's simple as that. You know, if you can support with antioxidants, the oxidative stress that's going on, uh, that's great. That's we're all agreeable on that. So I, I appreciate that. I think uh, going full circle here after two and a half hours, yeah. we, we found some common ground <laughs> and hopefully uh, uh, we can leave here at least knowing uh, that we may have different experiences, but we agree on certain things. And out of that uh, uh, respect, uh, uh, respect that uh, that contribution, uh, whatever form it may come into, because it's not easy for any of us. I mean, 
I mean, I would like to be published in Lancet. There's nobody that's going to publish my work in the Lancet. <laughs> and it's, it's too controversial. Okay. Uh, but if you got published on it, great. I, I think that's, that's wonderful. More people need to have that and particularly need to take your advice on this mass thing and this, uh, and, uh, this, this thing about vaccination. Uh, I, I think it's critical and particularly when uh, we're going to come to this political question, should vaccines be mandated? <laughs> you know, I mean, is that taking away some of our sovereign rights? I mean, maybe I don't believe in vaccines. Maybe somebody else does, but I'm not going to take that choice away from that. We can't allow, I don't believe as, as a, a free people in the United States, allow people, uh, you know, the, the government or politics to take away our sovereign rights. And I think uh, freedom of choice, medical freedom of choice is something that can't be suppressed, that we need to be able to have these types of discussions so we can look at all issues uh, of, of the particular uh, subject or or. Uh, research that we're talking about. So once again, uh, nice to meet you all and uh, all the best to you and God bless you and God bless your families and God bless America. Well, thanks for coming on. We do need to wrap it up. It's been two and a half hours. I have a feeling if we really wanted to, we could go another two and a half (laughs) because uh, there's so much to discuss. And I know that I learned a lot um, and we will continue having more and more of these debates. and I think because it, we get into complicated territory, and I'd love to really, from my part of it as the host of the interview, be able to streamline these things, make sure that people understand and take some of this complex microbiology and make it understandable to people and do my part in helping all of the audience do their own research, figure out what's going on. Uh, and make their own healthcare decisions. And uh, the best part about it is uh, both of you guys are passionate about what you believe. You're both working to help people as much as you can. Uh, and we all come together on this idea of healthcare freedom because we just are trying to inform people so they can make the best choices for themselves about their health. And so uh, really appreciate the two of you for coming on and helping us do that here at Transparent Media Truth. I think this has been the longest one we've done so far. So again, better wrap it up now before we go off on another couple tangents for a few more hours. (laughs) Um, But again, really appreciate the both of you, Dr. Richard Fleming and Dr. Robert Young for coming on the program. Uh, And I hope you two have uh, an incredible rest of your Labor Day. And uh, sure, we can we can make this happen again. Maybe in a couple of months or, or uh, you know, as we uh, as we keep getting better at doing these, we'll have you guys back and, and we'll make this happen again. So uh, we can continue Happy the to conversation do so. at a later date. Okay. Thanks anyway, again, sir. gentlemen. You guys Thank have you. a great day. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, all right. That was a little bit of a wild ride, everybody. I hope you enjoyed what you just listened to. Um, I think that it got a lot more contentious than I was hoping. Uh, As I described a bit in the introduction, we at Transparent Media Truth are really hoping to provide a platform where people with different opinions can feel like they have a safe space to disagree, uh, but that both members, both parties are uh, respectful of each other and that the attitude is really just about educating the public as to differences of opinion and having a polite debate uh, about where those differences lie uh, so that we can really have a conversation uh, that is educational uh, for people that are interested in understanding both sides of any given issue. So uh, I hope that that happened for you. Uh, At times that got more contentious than I really wanted it to get. I was afraid it didn't feel to me like uh, enough respect was given by both parties. 
um, in terms of the uh, the long decades work that has gone into both of these individuals uh, in their careers as physicians, uh, even though they've come to uh, have these differences in opinion as to how to treat patients. So um, thanks for your patience with this. I just want to say that I myself am going through a learning curve to learn how to deal with interviews that do get more contentious like this uh, and learning to be a little bit stronger at uh, kind of putting my foot down and saying, hey, uh, we just demand a certain level of respect for each other so that it doesn't get that out of control. So, um, you know, I hope you uh, learned from this one. And I just want you to know that we are all uh, getting better at what we do all the time. So uh, we will continue to learn ourselves from our end and hope that we can provide uh, debates like this one uh, with a spirit of unity uh, rather than uh, such a, 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 a spirit of conflict uh, that sometimes seemed to come out of this one. So uh, thanks for checking it out. And, and I do think there was a lot of great information, despite the fact that uh, there were these occasional flare-ups. So uh, I hope you did learn a lot from this episode. Uh, you know, my take uh, is that I am just basically fascinated and even excited uh, anytime something like the viral theory, which has just become a part of our cultural mythology actually gets doubted uh, because then our people's minds open up. We start to say, hey, you know, what about this? We all assume that this was true, but maybe it's not true. Let's look into it. Let's think about it. Uh, and so this is something good that's been coming out of this COVID-19 pandemic where people are actually starting to say, what is the definition of a virus? How do we know this is a unique virus? Uh, what's going on here? Let's really look into this and let's look at other possibilities. Um, one thing that I wanted to say uh, as a practitioner of Tai Chi, I've studied Taoism now for 20 plus years, and, and I'm really attracted to yin-yang theory, and I just wanted to describe this to everyone again because this uh, discussion did become so contentious at times, and it's like we've got to understand that there is a yin and there is a yang in Western culture. These two opposites always fight each other, <laughs> and then one person's supposed to be right and the other person's supposed to be wrong. But in other traditions, uh, like in the Taoist tradition, with yin-yang theory, there's a notion that there's always going to be these two different points of view. And uh, in a healthy population, they, these opposites find a balance and uh, a symbiosis with each other and work together. And that's the, um, the type of emotional health that we're striving for here at Transparent Media Truth. And what we're looking for in these uh, roundtable discussions and the debates that we are producing. Um, so something to think about. And actually... We're about to have Dr. Seneff, Dr. Stephanie Seneff from MIT back on the program, uh, and I'm about to do an episode with her on The Shift as well. And we are going to describe her theory of viral transmission that is kind of a combination of both. And um, Dr. Young even mentioned that there is a third option, that the environment and, uh, you know, the, the germs and the bacteria and the viruses could be spreading and, and that there's uh, truth to both sides. So keep an open mind to that and we'll keep bringing you different theories and uh, people with different uh, ideas so that you can keep continue to compare and decide how you feel about your own health and how you want to protect yourself against disease and, and uh, treat yourself when you do get sick. So uh, just trying to provide as much information as we possibly can so our audience can choose for themselves what they want to believe. Um, yeah, a couple of interesting points that keep coming up to me when I'm having this conversation. And the one um, from the germ theory side is, uh, like Dr. Fleming continued to say, oh, this is just like some kind of midichlorian, like from Star Wars, you're just making this stuff up. But clearly, 
people have uh, observed this somatid cycle. So <clears throat> we, you know, need to be given some other explanation then, uh, Dr. Fleming, if if uh, this isn't uh, some kind of a pleomorphic uh, evolution that's happening here, then what are these things that are getting observed under the microscope? Can you can you give us that? Um, and then conversely, uh, I always want to know from the terrain theorists, well, if there's no virus, then how does disease spread? I mean, it seems like when a sick you get too close to a sick person, you have a good chance of catching the disease, and these diseases are spreading across the world. And I also question then if there are no such thing as a virus, then what are they working on in terms of bioweaponry uh, when they're when they're working at these level four labs across the world to uh, to create uh, these um, this germ warfare? I mean, obviously billions and billions of dollars are spent building these labs and developing uh, germ warfare. So if these germs didn't really exist, or if the diseases didn't spread. Um, then uh, what is really going on there? So I still have some questions. All of my questions didn't quite get answered by these two. Uh, I think there was so much back and forth. It was a little bit challenging to uh, create a real linear argument there, but I think still lots of, of good information to be gleaned. And uh, I hope you learned something from listening to it. I know that I learned something from participating in that discussion. Uh, and I am continuing to learn how better to produce these kinds of, of interviews uh, and moderate these debates so that more of this information can come across more clearly. So bear with us here at Transparent Media Truth. Uh, I just want to say thank you again for listening. And uh, we're going to continue to produce more of these, and hopefully we'll get more of this information out there. Uh, we're looking constantly for people that want to promote uh, germ and terrain theory, uh, and we'd like to keep this series going so we can really hash out some of these differences. Um, and do so, again, in this spirit of unity. I mean, I think that we can have these kinds of, of really uh, huge disagreements in terms of how we should be taking care of ourselves and how we should be taking care of others while still understanding the importance of living in a world where each of us are free to choose the kind of health care that we want to decide for ourselves and our families. So uh, get the information out there, have healthy debates, but have it under the umbrella that we believe in healthcare freedom. And that's what we're really trying to do here uh, at Transparent Media Truth with these debates. So uh, thanks for participating. Again, hope you got something out of it. I know that I did. And we'll keep, uh, we'll keep bringing the information to you. So stay tuned for next week. We'll have another one coming out. Uh, and we'll talk to you again then. All right. Thanks again. Opinions and ideas expressed in this roundtable discussion do not necessarily reflect the views of Transparent Media Truth, but only those of the speakers participating in the discussion. Under the Copyright Disclaimer within Section 107 of the Copyright Act of 1976, allowances are made for fair use of public content for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. Fair use is a use permitted by copyright statute that might otherwise be infringing. Nonprofit, educational, or personal use tips the balance in favor of fair use.